Finally taking stock here of the final pile of also rans for the year of 1972. In this lot, I rank them all at 6 out of 10s. They're all above average and all only really just miss out on that top 10 spot. Honestly, it is tightly stacked around these parts, I kid you not. I found it really hard to put these in an order. So I sort of went over the synopsises. I skipped my way through some of the trailers a little bit just to remind myself. And I, and I did the rankings that way. But we do have to begin somewhere. And today, that somewhere is with the case of the bloody Iris. Why an Iris? Because Adam thought it a symbol. Ah, a symbol of passion. You think I imagined it all, don't you, Commissioner? Somebody murdered those two beautiful girls just before you and your friend moved into that building. I'll do what I can to help both of you. But uh, you've got to help me. I'd like you to keep living in that house. You can't be serious. I'm serious. Of course, you're perfectly free to say no. But I'm sure it's worth the risk. You'll be the bait to trap the killer. The girl in the elevator was a high-class hustler. She lived down the street at number 713. The other girl, Mazar Harrington, did some kind of strip number in a casino. One of those clubs where they uh, where they won't let you in unless you pay a membership fee. Now that was a trailer for the case of the bloody Iris. And like a ton of these also runs, I saw this one on YouTube. And this has a bit of a rubbish ending, but the journey to get there was top tier giallo. Now, excuse me if I don't know how to pronounce this name, but it's Edwidge Fenich? Fenech? Not sure. But anyway, she leads this cast of models that are getting stabbed up one by one in this swanky apartment block. It's a, it's a whodunit, of course it is, it's a giallo, but it does turn into a whole lot of like garbage by the end. Gotta say though, it was fun to watch overall, I promise. That's why it's a six and not a five. But even better than that bloody damned iris, well, it is Tombs of the Blind Dead. And yeah, this was another one that I scored on YouTube. Plus, it's got some of the best looking zombie effects that I've ever seen in cinema history. I just wish the film lived up to that undead design. It is truly outstanding. But let's move on. Now, this next film I didn't expect much from at all, but it did surprise me in what a fantastic comfort watch it was. It felt like a 60s throwback, and it was called Tower of Evil. In this, a group of experienced archaeologists, they're searching for this old and mystic Phoenician treasure. And at that moment, they're surprised by a series of mysterious murders. 
But better than that, though, is the blood-spattered bride. And unfortunately, I definitely didn't understand exactly what was going on fully during this slow-paced Spanish vampire movie, but I know that I liked it. I'm definitely going to give this one a second watch because I need some time. I need time to try and figure out what was the dream sequence. Was this imagined? Was it real? But here's the swizz about the whole thing. You know when you like something, but you don't know why you like it. Well, this film is that. That is The Blood-Spattered Bride. But after that, I've placed The Aspects. Now, get ready. The pole's stuck. At the first sign of death, it begins a cry of torment that drives the dying mad. The aspects, more than a myth, more than a maybe. Now, I swear I bought this, but I can't find it at all. Uh, and I know that it is currently on YouTube, so maybe I watched it there. This one is commonly seen as a 1973 movie, but it's not clear when this was first shown commercially. This one has got this feel of hammer horror about it, but there's a fresh cast, like a real modern type cast in it. And it's only got a couple of slower, chatty laboratory moments, which Hammer loved to put in their films. Uh, I've forgotten that actually I'd seen this a few years before I actually watched it for this episode. And I still enjoyed it the second watch. It's got two boffins who discover a route to eternal life. But it has this certain, shall we say, drawback about it. And we'll leave it at that. And it's been a hot minute since I've watched a disaster movie, but I was proper excited to see this time around an old one, a 70s one. It was the Poseidon Adventure. Of course it was. And just laying it out there, the very first time when I looked over all the movies that I had a potential to choose from to watch for this episode, well... Poseidon Adventure really ticked a lot of boxes for me. And it was just as much mad fun as I expected that it would be when the good ship Poseidon flipped its lid. Strange that I'd never sailed in this one before, but there we go. It was a first time watch and it's pretty good. It's a 6 out of 10. And now what is at my number 16 in the chart is this classic TV movie called The Night Stalker. And for this one, I've invited a now regular guest onto the show to discuss it with me. His name is Lono and he is a host from the We Belong Dead podcast over in that there America. Now, as I say, the film that he chose was the made-for-TV movie called The Night Stalker. It stars Darren McGavin and he plays the lead of Carl Kolchek. We're going to be dipping into that in a few moments. I'd like before that, though, just to simply say that there are a few new characters, and I say new, over the last six months that I've been meeting for this show, either online or in actual real life, that I keep asking back onto A Year in Horror because they bring me so much personal enjoyment when I listen to them in whatever they do in their own or when they come on and they talk to me. And I think that they make this show better and they enrich my life just for giving up that little bit of their time. I absolutely love it. So Lono, you're one of these people if you're actually listening now. If you're not, Lono is one of them people that uh, I'm talking about here. <laughs> 
<laughs> Previously, he joined us on A Year in Horror for the 1969 Big Hitter episode when we discussed Night Gallery. And I'm dead chuffed to report back that he is coming back on again very soon to discuss the Andy Warhol Nightmare video nasty with me. But that's over on the Patreon channel. That one is called Flesh for Frankenstein and it'll be out in a couple of weeks time. In the meantime though, here we are back in early March 2023 and we're discussing my number 16 horror pick for 1972. It's the Night Stalker. presents an original motion picture produced especially for the movie of the week. Tonight on the movie of the week. May I introduce myself? My name is Kolshak of the Daily Chronicle. Kolshak reports the bazaar, the supernatural. The unexplainable. You will get it, another crazy story. This nut thinks he is a vampire. You know what I call that? Irresponsible yellow journalism. He has killed four, maybe five women. I saw that so-called super killer wipe up the streets with your so-called police force. They don't want any help from amateur bloodhounds like you. I've been a reporter for 22 years. And I've been a police officer for 30. Well, then why don't you retire? <laughs> Each man in the field is issued one of these and uh, one of these. Are you suggesting that we pound one of these into Skorzeny's chest? No, no, into his heart. Darren McGavin, the Night Stalker. Lono, welcome yes. back. Oh, oh, an absolute pleasure. And I'm, I, I'm not saying that lightly. The last episode I was on was the, some of the most fun that I've had uh, on the internet in quite a while. It was so busy, that episode. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. I thought it turned out great, though. I was yeah. shocked that you didn't cut more of our interview. I I tend to ramble. I don't know if, if people know that about I, me. I think like the, on the cutting room floor of that, not even five minutes. Not <laughs> even five. Because I'll I tell you how, how I do it. I listen back. And if, it, if if the file is too long, I'm just like, right, I'm going to have to start cutting. And I make little notes and it just takes way too long. I'm too precious about it. And then by the time I get around to it, it's one o'clock in the morning. I don't know what I've done after that. So it might be good. It might, who knows? I just put it out there then. All the the the, the pre-work that I do is just wasted because I'm like, when I right. get around to it. Right. Um, you know, I've only, I've only found one problem with your show in general. As a listener, I have zero issues. I, I absolutely, and I, I gushed about this in the last episode that I was on, but I, I absolutely love her. The the issue I have is as a guest, when you send the list to choose from, I, I want to talk about every movie. On um, It's so hard to narrow down what, like, and I, I kind of hate myself for going with another what are we starting with? <laughs> well, that's let's start with the. Oh, I was going to say the faculty, but no, we're not doing that. Mm. Let's I mean, do we could talk about the faculty if you'd like. <laughs> this is it. It's your problem. You're into too <laughs> much. Um, let's do the Night Stalker. Okay, yeah, that's a more family friendly. <laughs> well, I've got good notes. Trust me. 
uh, yeah, so I've been listening to um, We Belong Dead podcast. I've been listening to quite a few of them. I love it when you mention me uh, in various <laughs> bits of frustration and like happiness. So there's, there's a mix of emotions when you do, and I love it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I never want it to end. Um, That's what our relationship has become. <laughs> love it. But oh, I would like to give like a round of applause, I suppose, to your uh, lovely wife for the work she does for your podcast. The little uh, audio that. snippets and the, um, you know, every series has a different, you know, collage type of situation. She yeah. does all that, right? Yeah, she does it. Oh, I'm so jealous, man, because our, <laughs> I need someone that is talented to do art for our <laughs> for our podcast. I hate, I hate our, uh, like, thumbnails and our look. But she does nah. a bang up job, so so kudos to her. Paul, he's getting dressed. He can't find a t-shirt. Paul, what you gonna wear? Will it be a large t-shirt? Mr. Puggles, what do you think, Mr. Puggles? Oh, ready? Night Stalker. So this one I had seen just before I did the rewatch for this, and. I didn't like it the first time around. When I knew I had to talk about it, I really liked it. So this box set that's come out, so it came out, there's two of them, this right? One? No, I think there was the, the one, the other one that you just showed me, the, the pretty okay. colored one, pink. And then, and then you've got this one. Yeah, that's it. So you got this, that one and then you got the sequel as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Are they worth the, the dosh? Uh, I think so. I mean, it, it really comes down to if you enjoy Kolchak, uh, if you enjoy so much of this movie and series and sequel and everything that came out of it really hinges on how you feel about Darren McGavin as Kolchak. And thankfully, I absolutely freaking love Darren McGavin as Kolchak. Uh, I'm coming around. I'm coming around myself. Um, yeah, I mean he's he's definitely an early possibly the earliest at least american incarnation of that archetype of the reporter detective supernatural x-file i mean without kolchak there is no x-files right. your, your precious x-files that, <laughs> that everyone seems to love i love it too but uh but i'm also a, a big fan of like tracing the lineage of something mod like current or modern that I love and seeing what influenced that and all roads for me when I got obsessed with X-Files in the 90s when it was on all roads led back to Kolchak the Night Stalker which when I first watched it back then I was a bit let down because I had a hard time um I guess I had a hard time when I was younger appreciating or being able to put myself in a different time period. Well, this is the thing. You're too young to have watched it when it when it came oh, out. Yeah, yeah. So how did you come across this stuff? Because like we mentioned last time we were going to chat, like we've got that compendium, that TV movie thing. Right, yeah, and yeah. It's such a treasure trove of all these amazing movies that I'm like, if this one's on YouTube, I can buy this one, you know, but there's always a couple that you can't find. And I just yeah. love this thing. But the main period for this is around this time and over the next five years after it or so. How did you mm. come across it? Was it on TV, late night watches for you? I think 
I just all roads tend to lead back to my dad a lot of times, but I think I was watching X Files with my dad. It had to have been my dad because no one else I knew at the time was old enough to know what the hell Kolchak was. But there was an episode of X Files that Darren McGavin was in. Right. Uh, there may have been two, but he played. Uh, I can't remember the character name, but he played the 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 guy who created within the show the X Files, like he was the first Mulder, I guess. And my dad kind of giggled, and I and I just I just thought, yeah, that's funny. That's the guy from a Christmas story. Like that's the only thing I really knew Darren McGavin from. And I wasn't a big fan of the Christmas of a Christmas story, but. And my dad goes, well, yeah, but he was also Kolchak. And I was like, I don't know what you're, are you speaking Russian? I don't know what's happening, comrade. Where are we going with this? So he told me all about, you know, the show that came out in 74, I think, 72. What year are we doing? <laughs> what year of horror is this? Yeah, this is 72. <laughs> yeah, okay. So the Night Strangler came out in 74. Yeah. Um. So then, but, you know, back then it was impossible to, find a tv movie you know pre-internet or or dawn of internet you couldn't just go to yeah. youtube and so he would just he told me you know there was this show called Check the night stalker he he didn't discuss it as a movie i don't think i think he was more into the there was a, a one season of a series that came out after the two tv movies so he was talking about it, and i thought it sounded fantastic and i sort of squirreled that away and then later on in life i uh found myself at the local Barnes and Noble booksellers who were starting to sell overpriced DVDs. And uh, there was this, and so I, like I said, I only knew through my dad, I only knew that Kolchak, or I'd only knew that the Night Stalker, Kolchak, the Night Stalker was a TV series. So I saw this DVD that said the Night Stalker slash the Night Strangler. And I grabbed it and that's Darren McGavin on the cover, but it's, the back of it is reading like this is two movies, not a TV series. Yeah. I thought, well, this is the best I've, I mean, you know, whatever. It's got to be culture. It's got to be what my dad was talking about all those years ago. So by this time, I have the internet and I can look up stuff. And I, that's when I realized that, oh, this started out as a TV movie from Dan Curtis, who was a guy who in this era could do anything he wanted. Like he had proven himself. So being, you know, Dark Shadows, Trilogy of Terror, now Kolchak. So, yeah, I watched the first movie and I wasn't blown away. I just, I thought, okay, well, this is quaint. And yeah, that's it. Yeah, that was my initial cute, thing too. You like, know. Yeah, okay, next. Yeah, well, and then I watched the sequel, which I guess maybe when you do 74, maybe that'll be the last TV movie that I do and I'll actually do a real film on this show. <laughs> you have no idea how hard it was not to pick Blackula for this. You have no idea. It was neck and neck. Anyway, uh, so then I watched the sequel, The Night Strangler, and, and uh, I felt the same way. And I also kind of felt like, I don't know, have you seen The Night Strangler? Yeah, yeah, I've seen them both now. I remember on, upon first viewing thinking, like, well, that, that was the same movie. They just changed the location and kind of changed the monster. But otherwise, it was very, very similar. So I kind of... I wouldn't say I wrote it off, because even then I loved the character and Darren McGavin's performance and uh, Simon Oakland as Vincenzo. That was some of my favorite stuff is him and his editor. And uh, yeah, so I thought, well, you know, I mean, this is fine, whatever. And then I guess 
a few months later, maybe a year or so later, um, they released just a bare bones box set of the TV series. And I watched that and I, I, I enjoyed it a bit more. It was sort of like a live action adult Scooby-Doo from the 70s, where instead of like the, the mystery gang or whatever, there was just this one curmudgeonly uh, <laughs> reporter. Was it spooky things every single week? Uh, yeah, it was. So it was a monster of the week. It was very much. It was very much X Files, without the you know X Files had the the like lore that went through it or like the um yeah. overall conspiracy that you had to follow. Kolchak just said that no, we're not we're not doing that. This this is just Kolchak. This is Vincenzo. You know them. There's nothing to them that's like otherworldly or conspiratorial. We're just gonna do a headless motorcycle rider. We're gonna do a a Native American shaman. We're gonna do a you know um, what were some of the other ones? An android. A lot of the monsters oh, wow. of the week for the show were, were very. They almost have counterparts in Scooby Doo. Like a lot of them, you can almost one for one go. Oh, they okay. They did, and I would have loved because I think it was around the same time. I would have loved to have seen Kolchak as a guest on Scooby-Doo. You know how they did like the Harlem Globetrotters and Don Knotts and all these ridiculous guests on, on Scooby-Doo. I don't know why Carl Kolchak never showed up on Scooby-Doo. It would have been epic. Egos battling. Wow. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like I said, when I first watched it, I, I had a hard time. This is, I think, around the time I sort of started developing a taste for... I don't know how to put this. A taste for nostalgia that I wasn't a part of. I get it. Maybe I'm I'm um, neck deep into the very same thing. Yeah, because I I mean I remember in high school, around the time that I that this was happening, this was happening around the time cold check was happening for me. I had traced. I was very much still am very much into like the history of stand up comedy, and. I remember I I was a a big fan in high school of a guy actually a guy who was much bigger in the UK than he was here, Bill Hicks. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. Um, like I was very into Bill Hicks, and uh, so I started tracing the lineage of Bill Hicks. So I went you know to George Carlin before him, and went back to um, Lenny Bruce. And I remember in high school like getting a couple of Lenny Bruce tapes, and just not getting it. It was. I thought it was terrible. And I guess it took a bit of maturity for me to realize like, like this was the mid fifties and the world and specifically America was a much different place. You couldn't go on stage, even in a nightclub and say cocksucker without getting arrested. Like it, I really had to like formulate for myself, like, because Lenny Bruce did not seem like dangerous or that exciting to me is the whole reason that Lenny Bruce wasn't except like he kicked down that door to make the things that he did in the fifties seem tame and ridiculous now. And I remember the moment of like realization of how important that was to me that like, Oh, he did such a good job. I know this isn't the Lenny Bruce podcast, but uh, he did such a good job of like, breaking down societal bullshit and what you could and what was and wasn't safe to do or say 
to the point that 30 years later when I got into them, it didn't even matter. Right. I get that. Like, so that was pretty profound to me. And in a smaller way, and not as important to the world way, Kolchak was sort of a similar thing to me. It was the first of its kind. It's, I mean, as far as I know, you can't trace like the supernatural detective slash reporter subgenre back further than Kolchak. So yeah, I mean, we we wouldn't have I mean, arguably we wouldn't have Supernatural. We we definitely wouldn't have X-Files, yeah. Millennium, you know, all these great conspiracy laden monster of the week. Um huge hits that that have been on TV today and it all started with this one little tv movie that for a very very long time was like the most watched tv movie in history right so like for decades it was really successful like oh very successful and and this is the thing i think it's the the way that it's actually edited together going all over the the tape stuff at the beginning and everything Mm -hmm. like that and introducing that whole aspect to it i've watched a lot of these tv movies from my compendium and this one feels like a proper film as well as feeling like a, a TV movie to me. Mm-hmm. Like there, there is that little bit of extra spark in it, a little bit of, of an idea here and, 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 and a phrase that they're saying here that pops, whereas yeah. a lot of the other ones don't. When Michael Calls, I watched recently, and it's just I just picked it out of the uh, the book, and I was just like, oh, do you know what? This needs some of the night stalker sort of pizzazz in it just to spunk it up a bit um mm-hmm. odd phrase to use <laughs> there but but you, you know what i mean like this this one yeah. stood out so i can see why it was so successful um did you watch this amongst other sort of tv movies was this when you were getting into the like plethora of horror on tv going back because there's such a such a wealth of stuff to dig into when you begin there really is and to be honest with you, when I got that book that we're both talking about, I, I don't remember the name of it, and I can't remember where I put it. I think it's. I had it set are out. Are you in the house the alone? Show. Is it? That sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Are you in the house alone? That sounds right. Maybe. Yeah. Honestly, until I picked up that book a couple of years ago, I never really thought that much about the TV horror, made-for-TV horror movie, being a subgenre that was worth even. Like, I knew the heavy hitters, you know, like the the Stephen King miniseries for It, Kolchak, of course, I knew, Trilogy of Terror. Like, I knew some of the, the heavy hitters, but that book has opened up a whole, like, problem in my life. <laughs> like, problem. how am I going to fit all these, um, you know, and, and I've, only, I've barely, like, scratched the surface. There's a movie that came out, I think, the year, a TV movie, the year after Kolchak, that Dan Curtis also did called the Norless Tapes. I haven't heard of it. No. Okay. The same guy, Dan Curtis, um, did it, and it's very similar to Kolchak, with the exception of the the premise is uh, an editor gets his clients a box of his clients' tapes, uh, audio tapes, at the beginning, and the entire story is told through the editor listening to the tapes, but it's also a horror you know i think it even also takes place in cal well was kolchak was kolchak was the night stalker in 
California or Vegas? I think it was Vegas. <laughs> I should know this. You know what? It doesn't matter. <laughs> but the Northern <laughs> States is very similar. And I would I would suggest if you especially if you like Kolchek, if you like the Night Stalker, check out the Northern States because they're so similar. But like you were saying about how polished the Night Stalker was as a TV movie, like you you almost could have just released this into theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, the Norless Tapes doesn't have that. It's very much a made-for-TV movie that that looks and feels like a made-for-TV movie. And it, that's the I think probably the reason there was never a sequel to that or a or a series. It's worth a watch though. I mean, it's fun, but it's it's no Night Stalker. Well, the thing that I didn't like about the Night Stalker the first time round was the thing that I really gravitated towards the second time round. And it feels like I'm now looking forward to another watch. And I think it's the introduction of his character. Uh, And I'm speaking even specifically here about his wardrobe. Just what he's wearing is (laughs) it's so attractive as a viewer to like, what's going on with this guy? You know, we've actually got a, a character with these built-in quirks that, yeah. This and a film like this, you don't think it would deserve it, but like they've really pulled out like real thought going into just like his shoes. It's great. Yeah, like the straw fedora and the <laughs> big clunky fantastic. camera with the strip of uh, flashes on it. Yeah, it's aesthetically. Yeah, you're right. I, I no one in. Uh, TV, film, film, or TV looks like Carl Kolchak. No, no way. And I don't think anyone else could have pulled that look off. So there's something about Darren McGavin. He's such a like man's man. And then to put him in this gear, like, should not work, but absolutely does work. And then it's... to have him be sort of a a ladies' man to the point where he can like. The woman, the the girl in this film is like gorgeous uh, and like Carol twenty five years younger than him. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I still believe it. I don't. <laughs> I hate I to say, be the well, sax player from the Lost Boys, but I still believe it's a it's a different time when men could oh, be yeah. men and, <laughs> right. and, it, <laughs> right, and like, yes. women would swoon at the man. <laughs> like, wow, look at this man. He's man. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I also absolutely love the score for the right. Night Stalker. It's so subtle, but when you when it hits you, it hits you forever. And it's just that little like.
right. we love it. I'll take it. And it's creepy because of it as well. They know when to not put the any musical cues in there and when to yeah. do it. And like that's again just so rare with these like slap together things. We've got to get it ready for for a month's time when it's going to air. It's got to go through all the producing and everything first. And I don't know, we're mm-hmm. in a rush. There just seem to be a, that little bit of care with things like that that matter to us. We, we're not yeah. going to return to a film that that is just junk. We'll watch it once, tick it off and move on. The, the issue with this one, uh, and I watched the second time around with my wife, and she said to me, which is, I think, a problem for it, she didn't feel like that this was a film that she would come back to, and she didn't feel that she would be able to recommend it to anyone. Uh, and I know that the, the and all the was, kind words I said about her. I know, I know, ridiculous. <laughs> um, but like, and then I was thinking, well, my, I, I get that because this is a product of its time. Absolutely, this is, this is so early seventies. <laughs> Um, yeah. But what would you say to people to push them towards this? Because I think once, as I say, you watch it once and I was like, mm, I don't know. But that second time, things started to really click. Yeah, I would say um, shut up. <laughs> Just shut the fuck up. No. Um, yeah, yeah, that's I mean, I, a lot of time and I've, I have tried to or have recommended this to people. And my pitch is always, I always go X-Files. Like, if you love X-Files, then this is where that came from. This is the birth. As tenuous as it may be at times, it's, it's this, it came from that. Like, hey, you remember that episode with the old guy who created the X-Files? That's him. Like, they wanted him to be Kolchak in the X-Files, but there were disputes and and you know it all fell apart but uh that's always my go-to but also like um i would say there are three journalists in my life that have, have been heroes of mine two of them are fictional one of them is real uh carl kolchek um fletch from fletch of course the gregory mcdonald books and and dr hunter s thompson uh are okay. like the my journalistic heroes and uh I think there is something to say if you want to hit it from that approach of what it was like to be a newspaper reporter in the 70s. I don't think they're that far off, aside from the, you know, the insane supernatural vampire thing. But like, you know, those guys barely slept. They often were drunks. They, you know, carried everything in a little, you know, folder with a tape recorder and a and a cheap camera. Life and I think is... there's something very romantic uh, about that to me. You know, living in a motel on your next story, chasing down leads. I just, I think it's part of what because I, I work in the news field now. I work, I work at a TV news station, and uh, Kolchak may have had something to do with that. I think if I'm going to recommend it to you, it would be with the caveat as to don't go in there looking for like the, the craziest of horrors, but I, for sure, I enjoyed it with that X-Files tinge about it. And I think when it did ramp up the horror at the end, it was great. But my favorite bit of it was when he sort of burst his way into like, no, I'm investigating this. uh, And it's all about the rats you know, and like he's asking the other tenants about the rats and like and and yeah. all that stuff. I think it was really interesting, really well written, and it sort of 
it made you comfy like you're gonna sit in your chair now and i'm gonna watch the rest of this and see how it plays out and it yeah. reminded me very much of like the beginning of like a film like wreck or something where there's just oh, enough sure. setup yeah there where you go right okay what's gonna what's gonna come here now um completely different films but it's that same sort no, but of you're film. not wrong yeah yeah i never thought of that that's absolutely man i need to revisit wreck that was a really good movie it's killer um yeah uh but yeah you're right and i also love almost every conflict that kolchek comes in comes into like the stuff with his editor uh which i love when we talked about but like also like why is the government so like why is why is the police department and the the mayor and everybody so freaking down on carl and then the moment, the the like cocksure moment where he comes in with the old medical bag and tells them what they, gentlemen, what you have to do here is take this wooden stake. And he's so, he's so sure of himself. And it's to the point where they just finally go, all right, Carl, you know, <laughs> fuck it. We've tried everything else. And then that, you know, not, no, not to spoil anything for anyone, but like that very ending where you're just almost kind of like, ah. But he was right. But he was right. There is that sequel, 1974. Mm -hmm. um, now, is it worth digging into? I still don't know, but I've only seen it once. Um, mm -hmm. So Night Strangler, you've, you've already mentioned it is really similar, but I've yet to explore the TV series. Like, ah. where would you go first? Would you go for this film or would you go in, in and just like delve yourself into this TV series? I'm pretty sure the Night Strangler came out right before the series. So if you're going to do a like a linear watch, I would go that route. But I would also, I hadn't watched Strangler in a while. I, I typically will just, my go-to will be the Night Stalker. It's the original, right. you know, it's kind of the flagship. But when I rewatched it for the show, I decided to do a double feature and throw the Night Strangler after it. And I thought, you know, I, this is kind of a redheaded stepchild that I sort of don't often throw in. I have to be honest with you. I don't know what it is, what happened this go around, but I, I honestly enjoyed the Night Strangler uh, hey. a bit more than the Night Stalker. I think the, the monster is more unique. It's not your typical vampire or werewolf or it's a, it's a, creature that they've sort of created out of the blue that i think is very cool it takes place in seattle uh and it it takes it uses the underground seattle catacombs or whatever yep. very well uh also i think by the time you get to the night strangler kolchek is you know who he is there's no setup needed you're just sort of like off to the adventure you don't need to know who he is who he works for you know you know all of that so there, you can skip all that and you just get straight into the story and what Kolchak is doing now what happened since the Night Stalker which is fantastic and there are more gorgeous mid-70s women in this one um there are a few more cameos in this one of people that you recognize, like uh -huh. Al Lewis. Al Lewis pops up, Grandpa Munster, uh, and you know a few other people. Again, the 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 cops. 
that's another thing about the Night Stalker, the Night Strangler, and the series. All the cops and sheriffs look like almost like Ralph Steadman drew them. Like they look like yep. the sheriffs that are in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, which will always be something that I'm drawn to. Ralph Steadman and uh, Fear and Loathing. But anyway, yeah, there was something about the Night Strangler this go around that like halfway through, I just kind of thought to myself, how, why have I always put this one off as like the inferior sequel where like I'm having actually more fun than I did with the Night Stalker on this one? I would say go in the go Night Stalker, Night Strangler, then delve into the series. I also think Night Strangler might be the peak of where Darren McGavin was enjoying playing Carl Kolchak. Yeah. Because I think maybe midway through the series, you start to feel like he's trapped as an actor. Like he kind of was like, uh, I won't say phoning it in, but it's just sort of like, it's he's over it. <laughs> it's, a, like, it's a wild concept. Like who would have expected that one to do so well? Right, and then you've yeah. got you've instantly got the baggage of what's come before, and you want to replicate it without having to replicate it. It's, it's tricky. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't say they fully pulled it off with the sequel, but um, still highly enjoyable. The great U.S. company Kino Lorber has put out all three. They put out the Night Stalker, the Night Strangler, and the series. All loaded with features, commentary tracks. I don't know why I'm shilling for Kino Lorber, but these are some of these are three of my like absolute like. If there's a fire in the house, I'm I'm grabbing these uh, as a They're part. So of good the, looking. Uh, That's the thing, thing so and they look amazing. Looking. Yeah, they uh, the the artwork looks amazing. They've done a great job on the restoration uh, of everything. It's what a world we live in. <laughs> what a time and place uh -huh. to be alive in this world. Apart from your birthday, what have you got coming up this, <laughs> in the in the foreseeable? Uh, coming up in the foreseeable, we are just moving forward with uh, the We Belong Dead podcast. Um, we're into the hundreds now of episodes. Uh, we will have just finished up our limited series called Kindred Corner, uh, which is ridiculous, but I think well worth a listen. Uh, in April, we will probably be starting up our new uh, limited series. This was so much fun, the Kindred uh, thing, that we've decided that we're going to go back and forth uh, doing uh, the same thing with canceled, forgotten TV shows that only went a few episodes. So we're, gonna, we're gearing up for another. I don't want to quite reveal the title yet. It's a good one, though. Is and we it... always want to make sure that it's available on like YouTube for people to watch. So you don't have to like track it down and spend a ton of money on stuff. So Kindred the Embraced is streaming or is uh, available for free on YouTube. If I'm you want to give it. a shot. I'm, it's I'm a bad there. show, but I think, um, yeah, I think, I think we've, I think we've done something really good for humanity here. Uh, there's that. Oh, we've added a new, um, a brand new podcast to uh the We Belong Dead family called The Secretary's Secret Lair. We have a uh, a friend named Angela on Instagram. She's Horror Ghoul. Uh, we've given her a podcast, and every month she will pick uh, three films that all share a similar uh, element, and then she will pick those films apart and then sort of do a psychological deep 
dive into um, what's really going on, you know, behind the films. It's it's very clinical, but very very good. Um, so we're excited to have her on board. Other than that, it's just uh, you know continuing to live life. Maybe watch. Have you watched Blood for Dracula yet? Have you ever seen that? No. Should I? Oh, you haven't. You haven't seen Andy Warhol's Dracula. Nope. Well, Fish, I don't. Fish I'm not I. sure what year it was, but uh, I'm sure it's a video nasty. If if Flesh for Frankenstein was, uh, same director, same cast. Udo Kier plays Dracula. Yeah, well worth a watch, I think. Um, I'm not believing you here. <laughs> I'm not believing you, Lono. I'm afraid we're going to go there. Um, but don't you worry, people, because in just I think it's about three weeks' time. Lono's going to be back and he's going to be on the Patreon. Many thanks to Lono there for being perhaps the most spiffing of guests in this here bang bang party and i've got to say also i very much apologize right now for my voice being a bit croaky i've just come back off tour and yeah i gave it a bit too much in norwich norwich sunday massive hello thanks for listening i know there's a few of you that were there that did came up to me after the gig and told me that you listened to the show i flipping love it right Okay, back into these also rans then. And we're climbing very high now. Next up is another TV movie, but this time it is from the UK. It is called A Warning to the Curious. And although it is slight, this ghostly M.R. James tale hurtles along at a decent pace. And although this adaptation takes a more linear approach uh, than the original prose does, it is no less creepy. But better than that, I reckon, was a film that I watched called Deathline. Now, this is Christopher Smith's creep, decades younger and a lot fitter, but it is a lot less tight than that film. Donald Pleasance plays an inspector hunting down a potential abductor of patrons to the London Underground. It has got great location shooting and a solid, a man is the monster, or is he? It's that type of movie. I think I would have rated this one higher if those establishing shots had a little bit more thought behind them. Uh, I suppose they're meant to set the pace and the tone, but they all these sort of images, and you'll know if you watch the film, it looks a lot like filler. And, of course, that's what the establishing shots you know, do do as well. They do, like, buff up the time a little bit when you're trying to put together your cheap films. But at the same time, the best way to, you know, sort out an establishing shot, I think, is to set that scene. Let your brain recognise we're into a new place. This is where it's going to be set. And away we go. And that's not really what we got with Deathline. But I am not here to slag this one off, though. It is a flippity-floppity-good film. I'm telling you that right now. But you might be saying, well, I know Deathline's a flippity-floppity-good film, but what could be cooler than a flippity-floppity film? And I'm going to tell you right now, it is a film that I caught called Images, of course. You've got the keys, don't you? Yeah.
So that was the trailer to Images. And Susanna York plays Catherine, a woman that is so wrapped up in schizophrenia and her past partners that the viewer has to piece together what is real and what isn't. Just like that jigsaw puzzle in the lounge of the house that is prominently featured in this film. I guess, as a metaphor, it's about as subtle as a shotgun in the face, but some of this works really well. Of course it does. It's really high in my chart. Sometimes, though, it feels like 95% character study and 5% plot. I wish it was more of an even ratio. And sitting like a fierce bastard at my number 12 position, it's only Beware the Brethren, a.k.a. The Fiend. And I've got to tell you, this was a real key find for me. Uh, YouTube, again, love YouTube. Thank you so much. Helped me out no end for this episode. I absolutely love the bizarre gospel outbursts that are in this movie. I don't care that they're filler and it's just there to pad out a little bit. I don't care about that. Unlike with Deathline earlier with those establishing shots. This is the way to do it. It's proper cool. As it is, the whole religious serial killer angle and the sicko mother-son dynamic, it really brought me in. There's loads to love, including having several leading ladies and only two leading men. Very much recommend that one. But finally, though, we are at the toppermost of the horrormost. No, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Let's go with the toppermost... Of the, no, let's not go there at all. Anyway, this is the top bit of the also runs, and it's just so ever slightly missing out on a top 10 spot. It's another Giallo, of course it is, but it's called Smile Before Death. And again, you can see this thing on YouTube if you like to. That's where I caught it. This one is a proper sexy giallo, though, that culminates with a horrific pact of murder and bloodshed, and it worked really, really well. It's got a triple twist that is insane. Of course, is it stupid? This one is a proper banger. But that is your lot right now. If you were taking notes, well done. I hope something in that lot at least piqued your interest. It wasn't a particularly strong month for the undercards, but there were a lot of them and a lot of different genres, uh, and mainly Jello, fair enough. Uh, but a little something for everyone was in there, I reckon. There was at least one of every genre I can think of. Anyway, top three time now for the best horror films that came out in 1972. I'm going to give my poor, poor, sad voice a rest. Enjoy the rest of the show. I've already recorded it all. This is one of the last things I've done. Thank you. Top free time. Hitchcock. It's a serial killer flick. It's fantastic movie making. It is frenzy. I'm on the famous Thames River investigating a murder. Another necktie murder.
Okay, here is that letterbox synopsis. Just an ordinary necktie used with a deadly nude twist. After a serial killer strangles several women with a necktie, London police identify a suspect. But he's the wrong man. And I'm going to go straight in with an MVP here, and it is the lead. It is John Finch. He passed away in 2012, but he left us with a few smaller horror also-rans, which I'm really interested in hunting down. The ones that I haven't seen, at least. Now, he turned down an offer of a placement at the London School of Economics to pursue acting after he completed his national service in the SAS. The SAS, for goodness sake. I'm down with this. And there is a couple of corkers amongst the horror stuff. But yeah, my favourite is Frenzy. So far, anyway. Uh, it all kicked off in 1970 with a fantastic twofer in a double bash making two classics of the genre. First of all, with Hammer's The Vampire Lovers, directed, of course, by Roy Ward Baker. The one with Ingrid Pitt and Peter Cushing in the lead roles, yet yeah, The Vampire Lovers. Uh, and shortly after that, he appeared in another Hammer horror, and this time it was Jimmy Sangster's The Horror of Frankenstein. Shortly after that, though, in 71, he was in Polanski's take on Macbeth, which I would say is definitely horror-adjacent. And in 72, we arrive at this one, the Hitchcock banger called Frenzy. It's my number three pick, you know. In 1980, he was even in the super disappointing adaptation of The Martian Chronicles. That was a quite awful TV series. And then in the same year, the ridiculously strong Hammer House of Horror TV series episode called Witching Time. Uh, they cast Finch in the lead role and he was this depressed composer called David Winter in that. In 94, so we are now jetting on some 14 years, he was in a very very poor movie called Lurking Fear. Uh, he was killing ghouls in a graveyard. Uh, and finally, two years later, he showed up in a film called Darklands. Now, I didn't cover that in my 1996 episode because it didn't quite make the high score criteria. But I have now found a copy dirt cheap and that is coming my way very shortly. So I'm going to get to see it. Uh, the synopsis of that one is that a reporter investigates ritual profanitations and finds himself involved with a druidic cult. And that was enough to sell it to me, because it's got two words I don't really understand in it. Okay, Ron Goodman is absolutely demented. He scored this one, and I think the score of this film, Frenzy, it is so misjudged. I can't understand it. It's a sweeping, operatic adventure movie score. Uh, the only track that I reckon suits this thing is called Fugitive from the Coburg Hotel, which I played for you. Um, that actually sounds like a Hitchcock moment and a moment where tension is actually ramping up. The whole thing here, it's lunacy. But I didn't really notice whilst watching the film. It would have really taken me out of it. I guess that just uh, 
just raises the flags of how good the actual performance is, the script writing, the cinematography, everything else is in this thing. And yeah, you might think, well, Paul, you've really rushed through Frenzy there. Well, I don't want to spoil any of it. I think it's one of Hitchcock's very much underseen films. I hadn't heard of it at all when I got to see it. Uh, and I truly recommend that you do hunt this one down. So if you take my word for that, where can you find it? Well, you can find Frenzy on multiple platforms all over the world, but it is not free. And in fact, the physical copy, it's pretty expensive on its own too. So for me, I bought it as part of this Alfred Hitchcock Blu-ray box set, and I pretty much love it. Uh, the Blu-ray box set stays downstairs at all times, because sometimes you just want to watch a Hitchcock film, and i pop one in the player and then I find it a bit like a comfort blanket and I can fall asleep knowing that if I do wake up at any point I'm going to be in a world of goodness rather than waking up and looking at some horrible tacky 90s slasher bedlam c-grade schlock and I'm just going to recommend one podcast to you as well but this one is really interesting it's only 43 minutes and 44 seconds long so it's not very long came out in August 2019 and it's by Soho Bites not heard of them before but I specifically hunted this one down because I'd watched both films uh, in quick succession so uh, it's The Lodger from 27 that's right 1927 and it is still by Alfred Hitchcock, and also Frenzy from 1972. Absolutely bonkers, and a great episode to boot. So yeah, Soho Bites podcast that. And that's it, that is my number three pick, it's Frenzy. two spot is deliverance being over 50 years old and the somewhat exploitative nature of it over the years this movie has just given me plenty of food for thought why do i love it so much in a few moments in the discussion we are going to get into that a little bit more but for now what can i tell you about this banger well let me go on james dickey wrote the book and that book was quickly picked up Although, as also discussed, I'm not even close to finishing the book yet. But the main difference so far is in the build-up. That setup is far more nuanced in the text. Uh, we're not dumped straight into the adventure part of this thing. And as a narrative device, after having seen this film a few times now, I just love that aspect, fleshing out all those friends, the characters there. Doing that a little bit more, it just adds this sweet bit of texture to the whole thing. It's decent, and I would recommend the book so far. As for the film, well, four months after its release, it hit number one in the cinemas. It was a true slow burn success. Thing is, when I got older, my parents wouldn't let me watch it as a kid. So I bought this uh, Cheapest Chips VHS from Al Price or WH Smith somewhere. Uh, I was a teenager at that point 
Uh, it was that VHS copy that said the big picture in the top right-hand corner. People from the UK will probably remember that. And that company usually dealt with some of the older classics. Another interesting tidbit here is that it was shot in Rabin County in northeastern Georgia. And I had a look on a map and that's about six hours drive from the top of Florida into the wilderness. Casting is on point. Of course it is. We've got John Voigt as Ed Gentry. We've got Burt Reynolds as Lewis Medlock. We have Ned Beatty as Bobby Tripp. Now, I always wonder what it was like for him after that scene. It Well, it went down in infamy, didn't it, really? He also plays Otis in Superman 1 and 2. Uh, and yeah, as we also discussed, this was his first motion picture role. Uh, also, for a first motion picture role, Ronnie Cox plays Drew Ballinger. Now, I really liked him as a sheriff in the film The Car from 1977. I did a special with the band 16 on that one last year, I think it was at some point. And of course, he plays the evil, the big bad in Robocop, Dick Jones. He plays that guy. We've also got Bill McKinney in this as the mountain man and then Herbert Cowboy Coward as the toothless man. Of course, I love this film. This film is called Deliverance. These are the men. Nothing very unusual about them. Suburban guys like you or your neighbor. Nothing very unusual about them until they decided to spend one weekend canoeing down the Kahulawasi River. Ed Gentry, he runs an art service. Wife Martha has a boy, Dee. Lewis Medlock has real estate interests, talks about resettling in New Zealand or Uruguay. Drew Ballinger, he's sales supervisor for a soft drink company. Bobby Tripp, bachelor, insurance and mutual funds. Where you going? All right, I'm looking. These are the men who decided not to play golf that weekend. Instead, they sought the river. So here's your deliverance letterbox synopsis. Intent on seeing the Kahulawesi River before it's turned into a huge lake, outdoor fanatic Lewis Medlock takes his friends on a river rafting trip that they'll never forget into the dangerous American backcountry. Right, let's welcome back to this uh, this podcast here that you're listening to, the master of the macabre. He is a man that puts the ill in villain. He is the dude that will fight you if you dare suggest that Bill Butler's cinematography in Jaws was simply okay. He is the living legend that can only be Paul Chanter. Yeah, he fought the law and the law won. But you know what? It's not the winning that counts. It's the struggle. I think I'm losing focus. Welcome, Paul Chanter. film of James Dickey's explosive best-selling novel. Paul! 
Hello. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> no, I've done it now. You've just blown everybody's eardrums with that one. Oh, welcome <laughs> into the podcast. Hi. Should we do the whole Hi. thing like that? Yeah. <laughs> Adrian Barbo style. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. And yeah, I mean, last minute, thank you so much for this. Um, as I was saying just off air, I, I had this penned down for you for ages and then was like, there is something missing in this episode. Everything's oh, finished. You're missing the gold. <laughs> missing the gold, correct, which is the title of um, uh, this film we're doing today, Missing the Gold. You ready? Yeah. Deliverance. Hmm. Um, do you think there's a better film that came out in 72? Oh, I, I, I can't remember the list that you gave me. Right, well, do um, you know who got the Oscars instead of this? Uh, I know The Godfather swiped a couple. Bloody Godfather. Yeah. Bloody, how are you going to compete? Well, I mean, there was a couple, I know that jo, uh, John Voight, who was in Deliverance, was heavily campaigning for Ned Beatty to be nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this. Because yeah. it was Ned Beatty's first film as well. So It's, it's kind mad. Of... Mm. Right, well, let's start there. Okay, right? okay. So, <laughs> yeah, just going to jump straight into the casting of this thing. Uh, I'll go into how you discovered it in a sec, but okay. I was just reading through last night little bits and pieces, and both Ned Beatty and Ronnie Cox, um, yeah, first first films. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. They were both kind of right. theatre actors. That's nuts. Yeah, and th those performances, it's it's mad. Yeah, and also being the real life Martin Riggs who can actually dislocate his own shoulder. You know, that's um, that's why that looks so weird. Yeah, no, it's it's I think um John Borman was um initially well I think it was Sam Peckinpah was after doing Deliverance originally. Um because it kind of fit with his manly yeah. guys kind of thing. Um but he lost out on it and he went off to do ironically, he went to do straw dogs, which we have spoken about before. So John Borman kind of came on and the studio was like, we, we, we want, you know, we want big stars for this, obviously. And I think it was Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando were considered for, <laughs> for, for, um, for John Boy and um, Burt Reynolds roles. But I think Brando said, I'll never, I'll never be in a film if Burt Reynolds is in it or something like that. <laughs> And basically, Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando priced themselves out of the film. The studio was like, you need to do cheaper. So that's why John Borman then went looking at theatre and he found Ned Beatty and uh, Cox. What do you think about, so doing the Burt Reynolds role, what do you think about Donald Sutherland? Because he also turned it down. Yeah, which he regretted, I think, once it was successful. I can't, I can't, I can't see that myself. Uh, I see. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit. I mean... We it, needs, talking, it needs somebody like Burt Reynolds in that role, you know. Exactly. We were talking about Jaws um, before I, I pressed record, and it's there's obviously now. Yeah, as always, <laughs> <laughs> I am chatting with you, um, but it's one of those things that I can't separate any of that perfect casting like with anybody else. It just doesn't work. Even yeah. if someone would, oh, they would fit perfect. No, it doesn't work because yeah. this is an iconic thing, and those four guys. Now, and I don't know, I don't think it's because I've overseen it, because I've only seen this like five or six times or something. Yeah, so They're so perfect. I can relate to them, or to one of them. I can think, oh, God, I wouldn't want to be in a bar with that one. You know, <laughs> or, he's annoying. It's so, I'm completely yeah. sold. 
Yeah. Convinced completely. I think the cast is kind of unique because everybody was on the up and up in terms of their career. Um, you know, because Burt Reynolds, had, he was coming from TV and like cheesy B-movies and stuff. And I, I think John Voight was, he was on his way up to, I don't think, it, I'm not sure if he'd done, not Midnight Run, Midnight Cowboy. The other two guys coming straight from theatre, that every, everybody was kind of on. So this this kind of hit perfectly for all of them, which is a, a, a rarity, I think, where everybody was elevated by one film. You know, because normally, like people are at different. Oh, they're the star. Their their career hasn't really been affected. They they are still the star. But this one kind of got some popularity because they were in it with this star. It's like no, all four of these just went up a level completely. Which is why I think Brando would have fucked it. It would have been. It wouldn't. It would have been the Brando show. You know, so it would be a completely different film. <laughs> yeah, and Brando being as like kind of notoriously difficult as he was, this film was already going to be difficult enough without somebody being a bell end added to it. You know? <laughs> that is so right. Uh, yeah, just from the little bit I know about him, bell end is a spot perfect description. Method bell end. Sorry, yeah, method, yeah. Um, this, so you mentioned how hungry they are. This is like a, a band when they're just getting that press behind them, when they're really hungry for it. Yeah. They're doing all their own stunts. Well, the majority of them, they're yeah. doing things that you would never normally do, but they want to sell this role. They want to be the best that they can be for this. Completely. Um, is this an unusual thing? Because uh, as far as I'm aware, apart from like talking to Bellens, like uh, Tom Cruise, Tom and Cruise. Like, you don't get many <laughs> that do that, right? Um, yeah, or no. Um, yes, I agree with you. No, you don't get that very often. Um, okay. The weird thing is that this film was uninsured because they the, the budget was so like to save money the film was uninsured which is kind of funny when you hear Burt Reynolds line about he doesn't believe in insurance yeah it's like the film wasn't insured they were doing their own stunts and I think Burt Reynolds has said that one of the reasons he thinks the film was shot in chronological order which is rare he thinks it was shot in chronological order because if one of the actors died they could write it into the script <laughs> you see what you were going to say before you said that. That's mad, but probably true. I, you know, I, I just love the thing about uh, how they had to do the stunt where the boat flips and all this, and they did it with a dummy, and they said it looks, it looks shit. It looks like it looks like a dummy, and Burt Reynolds is like, well, why don't I just do it? And John Borman's like, right, okay, yeah, okay. So they did it. He flipped it. He flipped the boat, broke his coccyx, and fucked his head up and his back. Oh and they God. said, so how did it look? And he said, it looked like a dummy going over a waterfall. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so no. It was, it was it... absolutely pointless. Which shot did they use? <laughs> it, it, you do use, you do see it. It's, it's, um, you see Burt Reynolds do a complete flip. Um, so, okay. so it, it is in there. They did use, and like John Boyd climbing up the mountain. That's, yeah. that's all him. That's all him doing it. I mean, it's terrible day for night. It looks awful. Um, but that's him going up there, you know, and, so yeah, it was a bit Tom Cruise before before Tom yeah. Cruise, but okay. um, it's because they were just trying to save money. It's like Jesus Christ. I I wonder how I mean the industry was completely different, and a lot of it was unregulated. Where you would think, oh my word, now you would never even be able to. But yeah, yeah, I, I get that. But at the same time, it still seems a lot to me. It seems like a lot. 
uh, of stuff going on there where you would not normally get that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you had three people because I think Ned Beatty was the only one who actually knew about canoeing and stuff. And ironically, he's playing the one who doesn't know, you know, knows fuck all about it. I think they were given like a day or two freaking about on the river and then just off you go. (laughs) And because John Borman, the director, was an experienced sort of outdoorsman, he basically said to them quite often, it's like this and he, he would do it. And they'd be like, right, well, we've got no fucking choice now. He's just done it. So we, okay, we have to do it. He's basically saying to them, it's piss easy. You do it like this. And he would do it. And okay. <laughs> Shit. I want a Bells and Whistles Blu-ray or a 4K UHD. Yeah, yeah, now. yeah. I should think there's, there's there's plenty knocking about in terms of uh, apocryphal tales about deliverance. So this is how like was filmed 52 years ago now. When did you now. first see it? Like, this is so, so fucking old. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but when did you get to see it? Um, I probably saw it, I would, it was about 20 years after it came out. It must be, at least. But I already knew about it. It was kind of, it was one of the films I hadn't seen, but I had heard of, um, you know, the squeal piggy scene. I remember that being talked about by, like my my older brother and his mates talking about it and sort of laughing about it and you know that kind of thing if anybody gets lost in the woods or whatever somebody would mention deliverance or go you know you're like oh yeah, shit yeah yeah um and i knew of that tune years before i saw the film um you know i even tried playing it on guitar when i first started playing i bought um, a banjo to learn it, learn <laughs> it and then what do you do after you've done that I don't yeah. want to actually do the banjo. I just wanted that tune master. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and and because it had already kind of, so that must have been like ten years after it came out. Yeah, so if you say around like eighty two or whatever. That's when I was hearing about it. So it already seeped kind of into popular culture at that point. And you know, it's always ref- it's referenced in other films and it's parodied and so. So it was always kind of actually. I think it is. I think it is quite it's in a bracket of its own sort of age wise. Cause I did mention it to somebody who was considerably younger than me. I said, Oh, it's a bit like deliverance. And they're like, what? It's like, you know, like deliverance, like the film, yeah. you know, well, oh, it's a bit like wrong turn. Oh yeah. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> hey, that, I mean, that's fair. I mean, yeah, watching films with my daughter makes me want to wince and cry. <laughs> no references. She gets nothing. Um, yeah, so I can pinpoint to when I first saw it because I remember it coming out in our price on this particular version that I right. bought it. It said like the big picture and it was cheap. Uh, yeah. And every every couple of months they would get a load of these things in. Yeah. So it was around 88 or 89. So it's around that time. And I was right. 15, 15 or something. And I like you had heard the ding 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 yeah. no idea where i heard it from uh, but that the whole rape thing no idea no idea hadn't heard oh really before. and it was too much for me too much for me that age yeah it scared the living shit out of me so as i say i had it but i didn't watch it a lot at all like at all pretty much it was like well one watch and i'm done that's gonna just gather dust in my collection some things are just too much for a young mind uh, yeah, and this was yeah. one. This was that's one. understandable. But even like as a as a forty something year old now, it's like I I, I can't see me going. Oh, I really fancy watching Deliverance. 
it's like it's not one that you go like I'm feeling a bit down. Oh, no, I'll chuck deliverance on. That'll, that'll pet me up a bit. Everyone, you know? come in. Come in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what we should all watch. Girls, guys, come in. Watch this classic, you know? Let's talk about this scene. I'm going to, yeah, we'll talk about dueling banjos after. Let's talk about this squeal like a pig scene. So um, before we get to there, right, this film... Uh, I, I read that it cost two million to make, and it made around forty six, forty eight, around that sort of uh, on its initial run. So it was a huge monster hit. So so many people are watching this thing. Yeah, so many. I mean, it's and when, when you put it in today's money, ridiculous. Yes, so it's like a blockbuster sensation. I don't know how something with this scene in it can gel with that many people, and like you go home and go, oh, you need to see this film. Like, yeah. It's it's crazy. What do you think made that success? Was it purely that banjo and that squeal like a pig? Do you think that was the initial attraction for people? No, I can't sit. I can't see many people being attracted by you know the the idea of unsolicited bum love. Yeah. That's not that's right. not something that's going to pull people into the audience into the cinema. I th- when you think about. 1972 in American cinema, it was all, I think, you know, it was all kind of changing. Um, there was, you were, you were, you know, you, you, by that point, you'd already had James Dean, you know, and, and act and Marlon Brando and acting was starting to change from the old style kind of theater acting where you'd have one camera and people would be, acting in front of that one camera but now you had the advantage you had with cinema acting and as opposed to theater acting you had the power of the close-up so acting itself changed so then actors changed you had a new breed of actor coming in you know and i think it's partly kind of kicked off by james dean marlon brando people like that and then you know around 72 it's a bit early but de niro was on the cusp then and and jack nicholson was just about pop and uh, Pacino and stuff it was all and, and it was all more real I think cinema became right we can tell real stuff now and I think you know it it could have been really easy for this film to slip into I spit on your grave territory right where it became notorious I don't think deliverance has become notorious in the same kind of way people mention that scene but then they also mention a lovely banjo and guitar ditty at the same time. You know, whereas I spit on your grave, that's just, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go there kind of thing. You know, you already know. And I think there's, there is definitely more to it than just that scene. I mean, it is about if you want to see it, if you want to see those things in there, there are lots of things in that film. You know, it, it's about kind of city folk versus country folk. Um, it's about survival. It's about the sort of uh, ambiguous truth, you know, like Burt Reynolds' character saying Ronnie Cox was shot. It's like he, he wasn't. He just kind of dove off the boat. And then he kind of, he changes from, you think he's the man's man, and he turns into a bit of a wuss afterwards. And yeah. and and John Voight and Ned Beatty have to bend the truth to, almost like the breaking point to cover what's actually happened is so 
it's about bending you know breaking truths and stuff it's got it starts off with like what it seems like it's going to be a massive environmental message the way the film starts you know that they're, they're uh, Bert Reynolds saying about them raping the country and all this kind of stuff it's like from the first frame it's about uh, modernization you know like you, you're gonna wash a town away literally just you know washing the old away and replacing it with new it, and it's I think one of the things that kind of struck me about it it's 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 a very it's a men's film I don't mean that's just for men to watch it's a it's about men right and about how men interact and I think it to a it was pitched degree. as so. It was pitched. Yeah, as so. I think it was. Yeah, I think the original book was written like that. It's, it's a man, you know. It's a, you know, it's it's a man's story. It's a man's tale about men who are men and being manly and doing men's stuff. But then it also has, you know, yeah. But then it shows that that's a lot of bullshit, and it can it can deteriorate really quickly, and then you do start to separate the men from, you know, the wheat from the chaff kind of thing. So. You know, Burt Reynolds is reduced to nothing by these elements. John Boyd is trying to exercise his masculinity, if you want to say that. But, you know, he's trying to hunt a deer and is, gets the shakes because he can't do it. And then he has the same thing later when he's going to, when he's got the, the hillbilly guy in his sights and he kind of fails again. You think, oh, oh he's going to do it this time. But no, he, he drops the ball again. And the scene, obviously, the scene with Ned Beatty is, you know, this, the piggy scene is the ultimate kind of. Uh, kind of emasculation kind of thing i guess um and and it's also a precursor to like a lot of the late 70s and early 80s kind of action films i think well, this, this is... kind of fed into that it's you know i can't see i can't see something like first blood being made if it weren't for well, something like deliverance a lot of the press at the time of release and just before the release it was being pitched, um, uh, just doing some research again yesterday, it was being pitched as action adventure. Like yeah. these words were were put into text. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's a really strange way to pitch this film, but I can see, right, bums on seats, look at this, uh, look at the poster, you know, this looks like it's going to be this yeah. grand thing in the wilderness. And like with that intro, who knows where this film's going to go? You don't really know, but I didn't. Like when I when I was like fourteen or fifteen, putting that in, yeah. I was like, "Oh, okay, this is like is this going to be Indiana Jones type thing?" I had no idea. <laughs> but and when you watch wasn't. it now, kind of knowing what you know about the the genre that you're soaked in, Deliverance starts off like a horror film. Yes, 100%. it most definitely does. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it totally starts off like a horror film. Take these guys. It's the George Romero thing of like, how do you write a horror film? Take a group of people, take a group of kids into the woods and chop them up. That was his yeah. quick advice of how to write a horror film. That's what Deliverance does. It takes this group, puts them in the woods. All right, what's going to happen now? It's all going to go bad. You kind of know that now. But then back in 1972, you, yeah, that wasn't a formula that was kind of, a formula it, it, it's just you know you, you don't see these guys i i noted it when i watched it um last night you don't see a close-up of these guys for six minutes they're talking non-stop right from the very first frame when the warner brothers logo is still on the screen they're talking but you don't see a close-up of any of them until about six minutes into the film there's wide shots lots of wide shots which makes things especially the the, the rape scene it, it's makes that really cold and 
like it's almost like you're just sat in the woods watching because the whole thing is in frame and it's awful because you feel like you just sat there watching it and that would be you know like like you said action adventure if this film was done now it would be it the action thing would be played up a lot more or it would be an a24 release and it'd be very similar to how it is you know well yeah too right it would Um, it would be done as it is and yeah it would definitely be an a24 release (laughs) before we wrap up i want to ask you about something which is just like does this feel like it to you so in a lot of the um the reviews at the time after its release it mentioned the Vietnam War aspect, like that that's what this film is clearly representing. Right. Uh, you know, man goes somewhere where they're not invited, they're not prepared, and this is what will happen. And beaten um, by the locals. Yeah. How, how do you feel about that? I think I've heard so many films uh, run through the... Uh, you know, looked at through the prism of the Vietnam War, you know, even Jaws. I've seen breakdowns of Jaws compared to the Vietnam War and Return of the Jedi is, you know, the Ewoks of the, you know. Love it. You know, a huge military thing being overcome by the indigenous life forms or whatever, you know. So, yeah, I get it. I think... I think to a certain degree, some people might be looking for stuff like that. I don't necessarily think if John Borman, I, I don't, I don't know if John Borman was set out, setting out to to do that. But it's like I said about all the, you know these things that I listed a minute ago. Like it's about men, it's about modernization. It's there's stuff there if you want to look at it that way, and that's cool. If it, if it gives you more of an attachment to a film, that's cool. I think that's really cool if you can find a way. That, right, I attach, I'm attached to this even more because I think it's about this and I, I'm really interested in that and I think that's really cool. Then that's great. If you like, yeah, it's just an action-adventure film. Uh, okay, cool. It's, it's you know, I think if you, if you want to watch it on whatever level, that's cool. But I, I can see why, I can see why that would... Um, come up for some people and why that would be a comparison that some reviewers could make. But I think it's labelled a lot at, at films, especially from, you know, early to mid-70s and, and maybe even later. I think it's, especially, you know, American films, definitely, you know, it's yep. kind of, I think it's, I think it's legitimate and I think it's something that had seeped into, you know, you're dealing with artists and they're going to take whatever uh, is uh, around and they're, they're going to, put it through their sort of um, funnel kind of thing. And it's going to come out. It could come out as a film like Deliverance. That could be John Borman saying, this is my, you know, I've never heard him say it, but he could say, and you would entirely get it. But if he said, yes, yeah, it's, it's all about Vietnam for me. It's my, it's my take on Vietnam. Okay. Well, I started reading the book this afternoon. So yeah, I haven't got very far into it. <laughs> I'm looking, I'm reading it via those eyes um thanks thanks to my local library for getting it in but yeah i i i'm now reading it with though with that in my head because i've just been reading up on it and that's what a lot of people's opinion about it and so far it makes sense like it, it does make sense but so you're reading the the book the original the book, book itself yeah yeah so that was his first book as well <laughs> this is nuts 
it's 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 I, I guess I don't know I'm seeing a lot of similarities to George actually but it's it's you know because it's like the first book and then just gets adapted and but yeah it seems like everybody attached to it was kind of like it catapulted them into something you know I mean just John Borman went on to do it Exorcist 2 which isn't exactly the height of uh, whoa there come on <laughs> no fair enough no hang on <laughs> hang on because if you're going to defend Exorcist 2 but have a pop at me for mentioning that Excalibur was great when we were doing talking about Highlander. Come on, come on. <laughs> um, I'm on the fence with Exorcist too. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is a lot higher than a lot of people. It is, yeah. Um, <laughs> you mentioned the word; it's fallen very much out of favour at the moment, uh, and probably forevermore. The word hillbilly. Now there is a whole genre of horror. Uh, hillbilly horror you type that phrase into google welcome to a, a a very huge huge rabbit hole that you're going to be falling down i'd never heard the phrase until you sent it to me really hillbilly horror just made me laugh i was like ah. that that cannot i get i thought that cannot be a thing but i yeah it, yeah it probably is yeah I, I I get it. Yeah, I understand how how woke you are and and, and how I'm I'm I'm, I'm PC. <laughs> um, but no, uh, it's one of those things that I've always like had my ever since I first saw Texas Chainsaw uh, and saw that it was represented in that way amongst my friends. That's what I would try and dig. So every time there'd be an article in like Bangoria when I was younger or whatever about it, I would like, oh, that's going to be one like that. And Deliverance right. was one like that, you know. And right. That sort of thing. So um, it was really attractive to me. Um, is there any others that, that you into? You mentioned Wrong Turn. I love Wrong Turn. Right. Um, now, but, when you sent me this thing saying, like, can you think of any other hillbilly horror films? I was like, hillbilly horror films? What, what the, the hell, hell is he on about? <laughs> the only thing I could think of was Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Because they are both here. Wow. And I thought, hang on, I thought Paul must know loads of films that are classed as hillbilly horror that I have probably seen, but I just wouldn't. Class. Like, you've already mentioned Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, of course. I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought of that, you know, and I just said wrong terms. I know, like, I know that has been compared to Deliverance. But, yeah, I don't know. What's what's What would you have up at the top of your list of hillbilly horror because oh. I, I i get i i bet i've probably seen some of them because but i just i had never knew that the, the, the pigeonhole of hillbilly horror existed it's well it's completely expanded for me now like uh so uh you you would start to go through the australian ones of, of which you know it's basically when whenever you're othering you know indigenous peoples yeah. Welcome. 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 Oh, right. Okay. World. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but like, there so is Wolf, a Wolf Creek is definitely in there. A hundred percent Wolf Creek is. And, and you know, this film, Deliverance, it caused outrage amongst locals that will be yeah. hard with this brush. And of course yeah, it would yeah. be. Yeah. Of course. But there is a UK one. Uh, Eden Lake. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> and I love Eden Lake. And it took me a long time. I watched it absolutely loved it then completely forgot what it was called and i spent a long time like what the hell was that film that i watched yeah it's so good and then a couple of years ago just before i started doing the podcast i found it discovered it again but again this one just like deliverance it's got all them criticisms so you got like the the broken britain thing and like you got the fear of the hoodies and this yeah. is just like you know you got a, a fear with the the 
the hunters with no teeth or whatever or or anyone that's of the lower classes yeah this fear of them and it's an addictive thing for me i'm really into these films and i know how much it upsets people (laughs) what's wrong with me i i love exploitation so much so it's a bit of a deeper question this one have you ever examined that because i know you're into some of these things yourself yeah and why is it we're attracted to those sorts of things those pieces of art but they still hurt a whole demographic of people like is what is it with us i i don't i don't know i think it's there is something about um examining i think that's why people like horror films and i think like you know people get obsessed with like serial killers or whatever yeah, uh, it's yeah. it's kind of it's kind of um getting close to something without any danger, you know? So it's like you're examining something or you're taking yes. a look at something, but from a completely safe distance, you know, it's just, it's essentially like going to the zoo, you know, it's like, right. Yeah. There's a, there's a lion there, but I know I'm okay. I can look at it from over here. So like, you know, you watch something like deliverance. It's like, yeah, I would never go down that fucking river for a start. I wouldn't go down the river. I wouldn't go walk in the woods and I wouldn't talk to those guys if they stopped me, you know? And then there's the thing of, then there's the other thing which kicks in. And I think it's a, I think it's a very male thing. It's like, what would I do? I think, I think I'd be all right in that situation. I think I, I'd knock that fucking guy out. Yeah. And then I'd, it's right. Yeah, of course you would. No, you wouldn't. You'd fucking leg it into the woods. Like yeah. 90% of us would, you know? So I think there's a thing of like, you know, there's every guy has this thing inside him that, you know what, if I had to defuse a bomb, I reckon I could do it. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen enough films. It's the red wire all the time, Always. you know? So I think there's, there's it's this kind of uh, vicarious thing of, of, of sort of dipping your toe into an area that's, that you wouldn't actually want anything to do with. And I think that's, I think that's what it is with a lot of stuff with a lot of horror. It's like, yeah, you're experiencing things that, um, you would never go anywhere near in in real life. You know, like the whole thing with Texas Chainsaw, you know, like, oh, I'll just go down here with, with a torch. And then that's when everybody screams at the screen, don't fucking go down there, you idiot. Why does everybody do that in horror film? And then that's the thing where people are like, you know, if this was real, there's no way I'd go down there. They're, they're putting their own thing on it. Like, what would you do in this situation? What would you do in this situation? And it's like, I saw an excellent thing once. What's he called? Robert, Robert something, the screenwriter guy. I can't remember his name. Robert McKee. And he, he did a, a huge examination of Elm Street and Alien. Right. And he basically came to the conclusion at the end. He, was, he basically summed up horror films at the end. And he was saying that it, it breeds preparedness. You know, you watch something like Deliverance and you're like, right, I know what could happen here this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. And that means we need to do this, 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 this. So you're, by watching Deliverance, you're prepared for hillbillies, you know? And if you go out somewhere and there's a guy with a chainsaw and a fucking mask made up of people's faces, you could do this, 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 and this, because I've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know? And I think that's what horror films do. I think people kind of take that stuff in. It's like, yeah, I, I wouldn't do that. Like, to take a modern one, Barbarian. I watched that. I was screaming at that. Like, why are you do? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Just get out of the fucking house. You know? It's like just go the other way. 
you know? Yeah. And it's like, so if you were suddenly picked up and plonked into that situation because you've seen films and you've taken that in, I'm prepared for this. I think that's why people like these, you know, like these kind of real life kind of zombie things that you go on where, you know, you're chased by zombies or like the escape room kind of thing. Yeah, I, I've seen Saw, I'd be fine with this, you know. I think that's why people like that kind of thing. It's a safe, it's essentially a roller coaster. You're going to go on, you're going to get on a roller coaster, you're going to have a shit scared out of you for two, three minutes, but you get off at the end, it's fine. You know, but it's, and you're like, right, okay, I know what it's like to go on a roller coaster. I'm, I'm prepared for the next one. So that's why you go on another one. I you guess get scared and, you know. That's why you're not picking up hitchhikers, isn't it? After we watched The Hitcher last yeah, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think we even said it when we were talking about The Hitcher. It was like, yeah. no, I wouldn't pick up a hitchhiker. It's like, yeah, because I've seen that. So I'm prepared for the fact that if I get some, if I pick up a hitchhiker, it's probably, they might be a fucking nutcase, you know. Or like if I get in the sea, I'm I'm not going to get in the sea because I know what's in there. <laughs> I, I definitely would do that trail. You know, I definitely, if, if me and a bunch of my friends were going, do you want to do that? It's not going to be there next year. Let's do this now. I'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. I saw, I, I did, I did kind of, film. I did kind of think that, you know, if there was ever an advert for like, just, just go golfing or something instead, you know? <laughs> but that's the weird thing, like you said about the the area where it was filmed, they were deeply offended by how they were sort of characterized in that story. But the tourist industry went through the roof after Deliverance sure. came out, and you know it was like it it made an extra twenty million into in in tourist kind of income the next year. It's like because everybody wanted to go down the river on a canoe, they just didn't want to stop and get bummed by anybody, which is fair enough, you know. It's I mean, it's fair. I mean, I think everyone's got their line. And like, there are certain lines that I don't cross. Like, I don't think that's right. Racism, when you're being exploitative, like with concentration camps and things like that, mm. that gets me. Animal exploitation gets me. Yeah. But I just wonder why I watch so, so much of this stuff, especially in the 70s, and not really anything to do with this film, but like exploitation of women. And it, it, I think it says maybe something about me that I'm okay with that. Like, why is that? I'm just such a rotter, maybe. I don't no, know. No, no, I've been asked the same thing about like, why, why do you like revenge films when, when the majority or a lot, I should say, of revenge films revolve around something awful happened, happening to a woman. And it's yeah. like, that's, that's not the thing. I think, I think the thing for me with revenge films, it's that idea of, I'm going to do whatever I want and whatever I feel is necessary. It's that whole thing of like, it's, it's, it's wish fulfillment. It's kind of like now seeing somebody like give somebody the, uh, the payback that they deserve for whatever, you know, even if it's something, you know, even if it's something like, even if it's something like Ferris Bueller's day off, you know, where he's given, given shit to the, the headmaster. It's like, yeah. When I was a kid, it was like, yeah, fuck that headmaster. You know, I would totally do that. And then, you know, you watch something like The Punisher or whatever, and it's like, yeah, no, they killed his family. Fuck all of them. Yeah, you would go in and fucking murder everybody you came across. Or, you know, even... And so I get it. I get why, you know, you're kind of like, why do I like this stuff? I shouldn't. I shouldn't like this stuff. It's awful. And, you know, I there is there are quite a lot of films where it's like... I think we've spoken about this before, about my 
sort of um, not love of revenge films, but um, you know, I wish I, I have it in the back of my mind this idea of, of a revenge film that doesn't revolve around something awful happening to a woman, yeah. or you know, and and there are there are obviously quite a few films that mix that um, mix that kind of uh, staple storyline up. Um, you know, like Crossing Guard, a Jack Nicholson film directed by Sean Penn, which is a revenge film that's different, you know, and, and there's a film, a Jodie Foster film called The Brave One, which is different. And there's a German revenge film called, I think it's called Fade to Black. Um, oh, no, In the Fade? I think it's called In the Fade, um, which is a revenge film with a real difference. And, but ironically, you know, I watch a film like Revenge, the, um, yeah, love that film. Yeah. I, I didn't go bundle on that. I, I thought that film was mean spirited. I thought it was fucking horrible. Really weird. Really weird. There's that line again. Yeah. I thought, Crazy, it, I thought the beginning of that film was sadistic and, and fucking like, right. Yeah. Okay. I get it. I get it. You've done enough to her. Let's see the bit where she comes back and cuts yeah. everyone's cock off now. Cause that's what I want to see happen to these people. It's, but the beginning kind of went on for too long for me, and it was like, yeah, this is this is getting into sadism territory, you know. Well, here we go. This is the final question, and it's a big one. So we've <laughs> talked about the positives here. We've talked about the negatives, and then I think the, the negatives with this are serious. Like, you know, this has stemmed. This film in particular has stemmed maybe a whole genre of these films. Yeah, um, but also. I love this film. Can you recommend it to someone today? Um, yeah, but I think there would be some, I think there would be some, you know, caveats with that. It's like, yeah, there's, there's probably a scene in it that's going to not go down well with you, but you know, if you can kind of get through that, you'd be, you'd be fine. But it's the other thing that like, I think, um, it has that kind of slower, more kind of like I said, it, you know, the early seventies and that stuff. American film was going a bit more into realism, and I think that realistic, slower seventies pace might be hard for some people to get their head around now, um, or however people to sit through without fidgeting. Um, you know, I I don't think Deliverance has that. I don't know. It might be controversial. I don't know. I don't think it has a particularly strong ending or a strong third act. Um, once, I mean, spoilers, whatever, the film came out in 1972. Um, <laughs> once John Voight pops that guy, you're kind of like, well, what happens now? Yeah. And there's, there's no rousing ending. You know, I mean, even when I was watching it last night, which was the first time I'd seen Deliverance for a long time, after the scene with Ned Beatty, I was kind of like, what the fuck happens now? I know John Voight goes up a mountain or something. And it's like, and, and Burt Reynolds busts his leg and there's a little bit like pork with a stringy bit hanging off it, hanging out of his leg. You know, which I always remember that dangly bit on his leg. It's like um, it's like Jack's chin <laughs> yes. in, in American Wealth. <laughs> um, but yeah, the ending 
the, the final act of deliverance is not particularly strong it kind of it kind of fades out really it kind of goes out with a whimper and not 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 a bang which is what is which what you think it's going to do it's like right well these guys this has turned into a revenge film now surely um that that adds to the weight in in an odd way it adds to the weight of it like it makes everything else real because you haven't got this heroic action adventure ending this is yeah welcome to real life it's yeah that's the thing it's it's a very kind of realistic ending because the majority of life isn't very exciting and isn't very you know not, not our lives no my Other life, is, life. Is, is a whirlwind of uh, lights and uh, screaming and adulation but um you know other people's lives boring the commoners you people listeners <laughs> your lives are very boring whereas um, we <laughs> we live the high life <laughs> So I think I think the ending could be seen as weak, but I think it is playing on that more realistic thing. You know, like John Boyd's definitely going to need some therapy. Ned Beatty is definitely going to need some therapy. Although weirdly, he sat there just eating corn on the cob with everybody at the end, like you wouldn't think anything fucking happened. Yeah. One thing I did notice. Yeah, one thing I did notice last night watching that scene. If you watch that scene again, when they're all sat at the table. John Voight walks in and the old lady comes up and says something to him like, do you want some food? And an, an old lady sat at the end of the table, says something after this woman says her line. And the old lady at the end of the table says something and then puts a hand over her mouth because she realizes she said something when she should shut up because they've rolled and the other woman said her line. She puts a hand over her mouth and looks at everybody else like, oh, I spoke. And so she makes some kind of motion like, I spoke over your line and then covers her mouth again. And I just thought I had to rewind it. It's like, no way, wow. did you just get caught up fucking up on camera? <laughs> so, I've never seen that. I've, I've yeah, never just have a look it. at it. It's really funny. Yeah, the whole hand coming out of the water and stuff. You know, that's like uh, yeah. it's way before Carrie. But um, that's what I thought was the ending when I was watching it last night. I was like, yeah, it ends with the hand. But I was convinced it ended with uh, Ronnie Cox with his yeah arm behind his back, but it doesn't. It's got. It's a strange ending because you see this hand come out of the water, and John Boyd wakes up, whoa, and his wife says it's fine, go back to sleep, and he tries to. He looks like he's not going to go back to sleep ever again, and it just kind of ends. But then you had it cuts back for a split second back to the the still water right at the end, and then just fades out. Yeah, and I'm like, right? Are you saying that? Is it like you know the truth is under the water still? Or is it like, yeah, he might pop up or, you know, something. Is it going to go wrong? Are they going to be found out? It's a, it's one of those kind of annoying kind of 70s ambiguous kind of endings, I think. I'm happy with it like that. Like, it yeah, yeah, feels, yeah. It, and it's unusual for a film to be like a mountain. Like, you start off with the climb, bang, 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 bang. And then you've just got this, right, okay, now how are we going to deal with that? Oh, end. That's it. You know, it's it's unusual. Yeah. I quite yeah. like it. It should it should be in you know, I've said this doing teaching screenwriting and stuff. It should be like a, a mountain range, you know, it should always go up and down, up and down, but always going up. You know, so it goes up and then down a bit, but up more and then down a bit, and then up more and down a bit. And you know, and that's how your your conflict and stuff should go. But yeah, like you said, deliverance kind of goes up, 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 whack. And then it's like, no, we've gone, <laughs> oh fuck, this is all down. What the fuck? <laughs> you know <laughs> um paul thanks for coming on i've got one final thing um 
before okay. we say our goodbyes that robocop t-shirt is that being worn for the for the link to this film oh fuck no no not at all no but um yeah no that's i hadn't even thought about it that's like subliminal subconscious kind go. of stuff what if I wore to a total to, if you had a total recall t-shirt on that would be extremely freakish then wouldn't it, <laughs> it would <be>. <laughs> <laughs> was a clip of dueling banjos it's always bothered me that that part is overdubbed it's so obvious really takes me out of the film and it's a bit annoying but doesn't stop it from being like this big classic moment of the film does it uh, dueling banjos it got to number two in the usa charts and arthur guitar boogie smith he who had written feud in banjos in 1955 uh, don reno originally played on it well he filed a lawsuit for songwriting credits and a percentage of the royalties he was awarded both in a landmark copyright infringement case and i do love that although now if you do purchase the soundtrack you will see the name arthur smith on it he didn't want his name to appear anywhere on the film itself he thought the film was disgusting how someone is that repulsed by deliverance i have no idea he just wanted no part of it, except, of course, the cash. You always want the cash. But where can you find the film? Well, it is available everywhere to stream, but there is a paywall. You've got to rent it. It's not a freebie. And before we go into the podcast recommendation, I just want to say also massive thanks to Paul Charter there. He came in at the last minute. I needed to talk to someone about this, and he was the man. As for podcasts, Full Cast and Crew Podcast, they put out a quite informative and rather inspiring episode about Deliverance in June 2022. And I did a big listen to that, and I loved it, and I just thought, that is how you podcast. But then I thought, let's get another angle. Let's go into a bit of comedy, maybe. Uh, so I listened to another one in preparation for this. But I really hated the humour in it. And I just went, nah. I went, nah. After 30 minutes, I binned it. I'm not going to mention what it was. Just stick with full cast and crew podcast. And that's it. That's my number two. It's Deliverance.
Okay, so before I give you my number one pick, if you haven't already guessed what it is, then yeah, I, I just love it. I love it. So I'm going to give you a top 10, okay? Uh, number 10, it was straight on till morning. At number 9, I went for Sisters. And number 8, Asylum, a.k.a. House of Crazies. And at 7, I went for Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. At number 6, I opted for Dracula AD 1972. At number 5, The Cannibal Man, a.k.a. The Week of the Killer. At number four, I chose Tales from the Crypt. And at number three was Frenzy. Number two, Deliverance. And my number one pick, my favourite horror movie that came out in 1972. Well, it was Last House on the Left. How could it not be? Uh, but here's the issue. Exactly one year ago, I covered this in full as part of the Video Nasty series on the A Year in Horror Patreon channel. Uh, it was, in fact, the very episode where I realised that I could actually make a go of this thing. And I thought it might just be a ton of work and I was a bit apprehensive. But it actually turned out to be the favourite thing I do with A Year in Horror. I had a flipping amazing guest in the shape of Graham Bywater uh, and he loved this thing to bits and I learned from him loads of stuff, loads of tidbits but I also was gushing over it as well myself and I think you can hear that on this upcoming episode. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to play it all for you in full here. It's not something that I do often and I know I played some of Dan Martin's conversation about Cannibal Man earlier but... I don't feel too bad about this at all. It was a year ago this one went up and there are so many others to choose from on there. So much content over on the A Year in Horror Patreon page that, it, yeah, it's just mad. There's loads of stuff. But if you haven't heard it, I think you're going to enjoy this one. So do me a favour. If you haven't heard it before and you're thinking, well, actually, I really did enjoy that. Why don't you just subscribe for a bit? You can dig deep with me. And then if you're not enjoying yourself and you think, well, I've spent my money, I've listened to what I want to, I'm going to be off now, don't feel bad about it. There's a cost of living crisis, you know. I understand that. But as I say, I enjoyed this whole thing so much that I did not want to pass it up. Here is the 50-minute episode from beginning to end for my number one pick for 1972. It's my very favourite horror film that came out that year. It is Wes Craven's Last House on the Left. Over the past two and a half decades that I have known that this very film exists and that I have also been a total horror nut... I've been too scared to watch this one. Much like Cannibal Holocaust and I Spit on Your Grave, I've heard and I've read about what is contained within it, but I simply thought it's best that I never even go there. And what an idiot I was. Simply, all I had to do to avoid fainting was that I needed to tell myself that it is only a movie. 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 Now, there is an exhaustive book out there called Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, the making of a cult classic, and it's by David Zolkin. 
this paired with the luscious Arrow Video Blu-ray with its plethora of extras will no doubt give you an almost complete picture of the creation, release and legacy of this incredible film. So there's very little that I can actually add to the conversation, I think. But I do want to point something out. In Stephen Thrower's massive, big, thick book called Nightmare USA, there's this image showing a naked Sandra Peabody, a.k.a. Sandra Cassell. Uh, she's looking very seductive and enticing and seemingly enjoying that knife being lightly drawn across her belly. It's from a German poster for Last House on the left. And the reason I bring this up is because before I saw the movie, this is exactly what I was worried this film would be like. A sort of cross between soft porn for the grubby little men to get their rocks off to and an exploitative movie where the messaging was fuzzy at best and where rape will be glorified and even just given a pass. That's what I thought. Thing is, I should have trusted Wes Craven. Even at such a young age, his filmmaking may well have been green in many ways, but he wasn't a monster. Thankfully, he's just seemed to know exactly where to draw the line. And what I do reckon is that is why we're talking about this film with such high regard today. In fact, in Zukin's book, it made it very apparent that Last House was actually intended to be a far grubbier affair initially, as there was going to be a shower masturbation scene. Also, there was a scene with the girls where they'd be having full-on gang sex with members of that band Bloodlust. And also, the lurid gang members, they were partaking in necrophilia with the corpse of Phyllis. Thankfully though, Craven's reluctance to actually cash in on a straight porn horror movie and delve into horror alone means that not only have I seen this, but I would also rate it at a 9 out of 10. There are still moments that I don't think work as well as they could. Some of the soundtrack choices, for instance, are bloody weird, and some of the continuity mistakes and filmmaking choices, they seem very much, I would say, like it's the first time you're out there doing it. But you know what? They were first-time filmmakers. And these faults in the scheme of things, they're tiny. Considering the impact of this film, and considering the impact it had on me some 50 years after it initially came out, I think that Last House on the Left, it's a masterpiece. And I would really like to take a few seconds now just to thank my friend Graham Bywater. Thank you, chap, for encouraging me to watch it. It rests on 13 acres of earth over the very center of hell. Here is the first motion picture to offer to the daring a look into the final maddening space between life and death. Last house on the left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Sights and sounds far beyond anything you've tested. The last house on the left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Take as much as you can. Here is that letterbox synopsis. It rests on 13 acres of earth over the very centre of hell. A disturbed gang of youths kidnap, torture and murder two teenage girls... Unbeknownst to the gang, the parents of one of the girls live nearby. 
So yeah, as I just mentioned, I was encouraged initially to finally watch this one by Graham Bywater. And let's be honest, who else am I going to choose to come on here and chat about this video nasty with me? Except for him. He has loved this one for an age and we had this fantastic discussion about it which you're about to hear and I recorded and I edited this thing together for you lovely horror lovers out there. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did recording it. What a brilliant film this is. Please welcome back to the podcast myself and Graham Bywater. We're chatting all about the mad and messed up world of Last House on the Left. If you're kind of judging a, a film by the poster art, then something like Jagged Edge would have been a video nasty. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So if it, yeah, if it had gone by its original name, the same, I guess, with I Spit on Your Grave. I know I Spit on Your Grave has got a little bit more of a history, but that was obviously originally called The Day of the Woman, which again, if you were like the BBFC going through these lists of films, you probably wouldn't question that title. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So put it on the back burner. You're right. Yeah. I spit on your grave. I mean, like, oh, well, hang on a second. <laughs> oh, oh, maybe your followers would like a little bit of trivia. You know the famous poster for I Spit on Your Grave with the girl from behind holding the yeah. knife? Yeah. Do you know who that is? No. That's Demi Moore. No way. Yeah. Google it, man. That was her first, uh, that was her first photo shoot uh yeah that, that was demi when she was like 18 19. awesome there you go, there you go. that's there your, you go. <laughs> a bit of a bit of crazy trivia yeah <laughs> episode yeah well you know I, I mean you can tell it's not camilla keaton have you have you seen the film i've, I've seen the remake oh god <laughs> the original say, is well it's it's one of a kind man there's a documentary on it on um, Amazon Prime about it now and the history of it and the family, because of the family who put it together, because obviously Miyazaki was married to Camilla Keaton when they made it and they made it together and they did not plan it to be some sleazy exploitation film. They wanted to make some sort of big feminist statement. She directed loads of it with him. They hadn't seen each other for about 20 years and then they, they meet for the first time in this new documentary and discuss it. It's just incredible. So it's I, what's I the documentary that. called? Do you know, it's called "Living with I Spit on Your Grave." I think, or yeah, "Living with It," "Living with It," or it's on Numbers and Prime. I'm sure because I saw it a few months back, and that's a really good documentary because it kind of explains what they were trying to do as opposed to what it resulted in. Um, and I say I think making that film with the idea of making it, you know, a feminist movie is much more of a savoury prospect than someone 25 years later remaking it to be as sordid as possible. I don't understand why they remade that film. It's like, there's like a 40-minute rape scene in I Spit in Your Grave, right? Right. Well, well, what part of that needs remaking? I don't, I just don't get that. That doesn't make any sense. Remake The Burning, remake The Slayer, remake something that could benefit from remake. You can't benefit from 
you can't claim that a film like I Spit on Your Grave really needs that much attention that it needs to be reappraised. I wanted to ease myself in um, to, to watch this. So my history with, uh, and this is a perfect uh, way to, to go into Last House on the Left. So I got given a gift from my wife, which was I Spit on Your Grave. <laughs> okay. So I was like, yeah. oh, thanks. Okay. Watched 10 minutes and I, I turned it off. I was just like, do you know what? This is not for me. The whole of the atmosphere of this was about 10 years ago. I don't like it. I don't like the idea of rape on screen. This but is... we are talking about the original, yeah? Yeah, yeah, the original. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was just too much. So ejected, sold. Um, I just couldn't handle the, the whole vibe of it. And I always can get the last house on the left, I spit in your grave, confused. So if I've oh, never watched no. either now because I just I think they're the same thing. Um, clearly, that's not the case. No, uh, very different. But you know, doing this project, I was like, right, I'm going to get to these films. So when you said Last House on the Left, went and bought it, mm. and not only was I like, oh, actually, this is really good. I was so blown away. I was so impressed. It's one of those films that I watched straight again after. Because I couldn't believe what I was watching. I can't believe that I've missed a, a film like this. It's just gone. And like, I've just discovered it now. So incredible when this happens. So I just want to say thank you for from the off. For like going straight for this one. Because absolutely stunning. That's my Valentine's Day present to you. <laughs> I was surprised. I was genuinely surprised you'd not seen this one. Because for me, Last House is up there with Texas Chainsaw, Night of the Living Dead. It's a completely essential horror film. And it is, it is, it ages incredibly. And, you know, I watched the Blu-ray, as I said to you for the first time, two or three days ago. Right. And I'd never seen it on Blu-ray before. And I, I was, I had to go outside and get some fresh air afterwards because it just looked so incredible. And there were details and things I'd never seen before on the DVD. And I was obviously watching it in mind of you having recently seen it. And just yep. thinking, oh my God, Paul's just seen this for the first time ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's incredible, isn't it? Such a such a masterpiece that one. Yeah, um, it was one of those where the phone starts next to me and then just gets put to the side because I mm. can't can't not watch it. And it does happen every now and again. Um, like a film does take me aback like that, and I'll watch it straight again afterwards. So you know, it's not the only one, but like for it to happen with a video nasty oh my word what luck so mm. we, we've got to start with Wes Craven here before we go into the film itself I haven't seen his non-horror film but everything else I've seen Hills Have Eyes 2 I hated which is sort of yeah it's just this mashup <laughs> of Hills Have Eyes with a few extra scenes uh, and have you seen My Soul to Take one of the I think second to last film no no I've not so I think the last the last one of his I've seen is probably Red Eye. Which I quite liked. Yeah. That's a great film. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, really good. That. So this was a, a tick. I was like, right, Last House. Brilliant. <laughs> Finally, let's do it. What was your history with Wes Craven? Are you a fan? Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to not be, really, isn't it, when you're a, you're a, a nerd. Right. As such. Right. <laughs> Obviously, I think the first Wes Craven film I ever saw was Hills of Eyes. And... I had it on a VHS. Do you remember those gold VHS boxes that were from Forefront Video, I think they were from? They were just so iconic. And 
I'm sure it was probably a cut version of the film, but I watched that yeah. over and over and over again, and I absolutely loved it. But looking back now, having seen, obviously, the Elm Street films, Deadly Blessings, Last House, the first Scream film, Hills of Eyes is not one of my favourites of his, to be honest. I think it's brilliant, but it pales in comparison to, like, the first Nightmare on Elm Street, personally, I think. And Last House, is that's, that's his masterpiece, isn't it? I mean, none of his other films can have caused quite that much controversy and continue to i mean i spit on your grave and last house would i mean i spit on your grave still isn't uncut in the uk you still can't get that all right uncut. i didn't know that yeah there's still missing two scenes from it and but last house is now uncut which is cool i remember working at hmv in like 2001 and every other day there'd be some some little geek coming in and going oh is there any way of getting Last House on the left? Like, no, 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 not at all. It's You're not going to get that film. And then it finally came out and it was missing like four or five minutes. And I think Anchor Bay did this little trick where they put the deleted scenes that the BBFC had rejected as an Easter egg on the DVD so you could watch them anyway. Right. And those, I think they got withdrawn pretty quickly because I'm, I don't think, you know, they can't use the excuse we had a loophole that like those scenes were on the disc, just not in the film. Yeah. So that was the first time any, I'd I'd ever seen anything, any sign of that film because it was just a mystery. And then there was there was a shop in Camden Locks, year a long time ago, like twenty years ago, a little comic shop that sold like action figures and stuff. And I just went in there and just randomly said, "Can you get Last House on the Left?" And he said, "I've got a copy on video here." So paid 20 quid for it went back to my bed sit in Euston which is like the first place I had in London drew the blinds stuck it on and watched it and it was oh man <laughs> that was quite an experience so I've been watching the film on and off since yeah 2001 2002 so many times so it showed it to so many people I used to use it as like a shock sort of tactic when I'd been to the pub with some friends and we'd come back and I'd put Last House on the left on and just watch it and going, what's wrong with you, man? Um, <laughs> You're that guy. <laughs> yeah, but now, as I say, now seeing this new version of it, the one that you bought, it's made me love it even more because, you know, as nasty as it is, it's so, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie, which it's... I'm sure, I don't think anyone will ever say that again. Well, that's it, it's... it's... I think it's ugly beautiful. It's beautiful in its ugliness. It's beautiful in what it shows us. I don't know. It looks impressive. What like for for a first time out filmmaker, like this is so so impressive. I'd interviewed uh, a lot of women for the show recently, uh, and so what has sort of validated me to actually, I will actually get over yourself and just watch these things is that they love them so much. Like there is such a fan for both of those films we're talking about. So both both Last House and I Spit on Your Grave. A few of the women that I've spoken to recently have just said, oh, I love those films. They say so much. They uh, And also they generate so much talk, so much information that can be discussed and built upon. And, you know, and they're great time capsules as well of an era. So it sort of give, validated it in my head, right? Just get over this. I can't bear to watch this thing and just put it in. So 
that that's my history with it. That's your history with it. Let's get in uh, the gang. Let's talk about these these oh, retro mates. Well, <laughs> David Hess, as I said, having met David Hess, wow, very very just before he died. Very nice man, actually. I can't the believe thing, that. I can't believe he's thing, a nice guy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really cool. Like really nice chap. Um, the thing that I love about David Hess in this movie is. He's so incredibly convincing. He's so just so realistic and so perfect for that role that you can't imagine anyone else playing that. Because Martin, is it Martin Cove who plays the Buntley younger police officer? Yes, yeah. He was meant to be Krug originally. How would that they work? Were, they, You're right. They were friends. Um, and Martin Cove, actually, he's in The Karate Kid, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, well... David, yeah, David has the reason I, I think he's so brilliant is because obviously he also wrote and performed all of the music in the film. So yep. he was a musician. He wasn't an actor. So Wes Craven, I think Wes Craven may have even known him from college campus or something like this. And he brought him in. And I think David Hess was trying to sell his music more than his acting. <laughs> and, you know, and then he obviously got offered the part because he looks so menacing. And Krug obviously was originally, I think, called Kruger because Freddy, Freddy Krueger, it was like an early kind of idea of him. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, he's just, he's amazing. And there's Fred Lincoln, who plays Weasel. Um, his character is quite creepy as well. He was actually dating, um, I can't remember, no, who's the actress who played Phyllis? Lucy Grantham. Those two right. were dating in real life. So they actually had quite a bit of fun with what they were doing because... They were they had, they had a history and I mean everyone was stoned during the making of this film. It was you know it wasn't exactly a bunch of straight edge you know A students making a film. It was a bunch of hippies, wasn't it? Um, you've seen pictures of Wes Craven on the set of this film. It's like yes, that guy, that guy yeah. is baked. But yeah, um, yeah. So Fred Lincoln, he's a strange one. I mean, his character is very unusual because. I only noticed this on the Blu-ray because the sound quality was so much better. Right. But it's talking about it's talking about David Hess's character, Krug Stillo, being the, the, the escaped convict who's slayed a priest and some nuns. But then when it gets to the talking about Weasel, it mentions that he was he was a child molester. Right. Like, well, that just brings a whole completely different element to the gang, doesn't it? Because that's a very different thing to someone shooting or killing a priest. So that's a really weird thing that didn't really need to be added to it. They could have just said he was also a murderer. So you spend the whole film now thinking, well, this guy's into kids. Yeah. And then Sadie is, I think Sadie's absolutely brilliant, isn't she? Jeremy Ray. She's brilliant. I mean, she's, her acting is fantastic in this yep. film. In incredible. Really, really. She's so, she's so cool as well. Like I love her hair and her white socks and her little plimsolls. She's got, she's style, style icon from 1972. Well, yeah, what did you think of the gang? <laughs> the, the, I think the one with the nickname Frog. Uh, oh, Willow. Um, yeah, Junior. Yes, uh, I yeah. think he only got cast maybe because he could do that impression. Like, mm. <laughs> I thought, what an impression! What way to get yeah. this film? Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 a it's good casting though. It's, it's a very believable gang, and I think even though it's incredibly low budget. Mm. You know, exploitive. The acting is fantastic in this film; like, it's extremely believable. 
I mean, perhaps not Gaylord St. James, that guy. Yes. What a name. His, mm-hmm. He looks like he's got a badger stuck on his head. You know, he's like got this huge, big kind of 50s quiff with this white stripe. And he's like, hey, he's not very good. Do you know what I mean? He, he, I, I'd say his acting is is the weak link in the film, but everyone else is, you know, the, the cops are amazing. The cops are hilarious. The way they juxtapose the violence with them just sitting playing checkers. Right, there's a couple of things we, we're brushing over here. So we can't go into bad actors here without mentioning, at the beginning, the postman. Um, <laughs> so he says... She's about the prettiest piece I've ever seen. And it just makes <laughs> yeah. you think, oh no, we're into we're into here. This is the film that we're gonna yep. witness now. Uh, yep. And it's totally right. It's what a great setup because now you mm. know what you're in for. It's already dirty and sweaty and yeah. like vile. And it's sort yeah. of I'm sort of like, okay, now I'm sort of it's a nice ease in by just this throw-off gross comment and he says it so poorly as well so i, I love that they kept that take yes she was the finest piece of it. <laughs> yeah 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 it's very strange right so i'm going to go into my sort of my favorite bits and there's loads i love that they're going to see a concert uh the girls mm. uh, and bloodlust blood right well i want to call a band bloodlust damn it it's such a good name bloodlust i always thought yeah that's good. All right, all right. So I was in. I was like, do you know what? I'm, I'm in here. They're going to see this concert. I also like the the parents at home, the way that they're cool with their daughter, very modern sort of family dynamic there, where like even though, you know, he's like, oh, I don't know. Uh, Mum's like, oh, I don't know. They're being really progressive parents and allowing the daughter to go out and go to this gig. That's pretty it's cool. funny that's it. like that. Yeah. What's this tits business? <laughs> <laughs> she's like oh no one wears bras anymore come on get with it daddy. <laughs> so yeah i like that but i also really like when this is all kicked off when it's all gone down at towards the end of the film with the the mum and dad getting their revenge uh, and doing sort of a home alone style traps and like the the subterfuge of like taking the guy by the river and just saying like i'm I really want to fuck you sort of thing. And like to, to get in that way. <laughs> I, I just thought this is getting darker and darker and darker. And it's already been so fucking bleak that, mm. that it's like, it's really got me. And it's just mm. going further and further. And I was so impressed with that, that like, this isn't a, a 50 minute. We're not sure what we're doing, but it feels like we can stretch it to 50, like with Axe and let's, let's be out. Like this was fully... Yeah conceptualized and they knew exactly what they were doing where they wanted to go and apparently they were letting people just riff like some of this stuff isn't in the yeah which i think's fantastic yeah. um yeah so a couple of your favorite moments in this film what really makes you like love it more than other films i absolutely adore the sequence when um when phyllis and mary first sort of get ready for their evening out where they're sitting on the rocks having a bottle of wine and just talking about the summer turning into autumn and then they're in their car driving around listening to the radio broadcast of the villains i think that sequence is just amazing it's so beautifully shot the the soundtrack is amazing the the tone of it is just 
it's so brooding. You know that this isn't going to go well, but you're just trying to enjoy those last minutes those girls have got before things turn out for the worst. Right. I think the scene when Phyllis is does a runner and she's running through the woods and there's that rattling sound effect. Um, And then she walks into the cemetery and she thinks she's made it. And then they all just kind of circle around her. That's, that's just, it's just so beautiful. And knowing full well that all of that was shot at Sean Cunningham's mum's house and back garden. That's yeah. Yeah. It's just to me, it's so kind of, homegrown and so real that sequence because you know that the road by the cemetery is like you know that was the house of the uh, the producer's mum this was where they probably spent their youth it wasn't some set it was where they probably actually were hanging out and yeah just I just love that vibe and you can tell they know the woods really well because they've obviously the way it's filmed the way where they're running and oh man (laughs) loves doing that he loves having that you're almost safe you're almost said, mm. look, there's a car. Yes. Like you're there. Oh, he, and this yeah. is the first time, this first film, and he's already like like doing that. Also, mm. your house, it's across the road. Like it's yeah. just there. Oh, that's really disturbing. That's one of the most disturbing parts when they get out of the when they finally get to the woods and the car breaks down and Mary gets out the trunk and she turns around and she can see her post mailbox a oh, few oh, feet away. Nothing. But that is it's so intense. And I think. We have to mention Sandra Cassell's acting in this film because it's gone down in history that she wasn't acting for a lot of it and that she was having a really tough time with it, which does, it does add this sort of element of unease to it. And I don't know how much of it is true, but, you know, when she's getting really upset when they're stripping her, she wasn't wanting to do that sequence. Right. So that's all quite genuine. So, you know, we don't know she may have <laughs> yeah she hasn't i don't think she's spoken about the film since 1972 or done an interview so she well, obviously this, wasn't too happy on it <laughs> this, um, i remember the, the this was uh, quite the thing with this film and another reason why i didn't want to get involved with it 10 years ago or so because there was a lot mm. of that around the film about and, and also at the time it was kubrick and the shining about how he was treating that set. Yeah. yeah so that was all in the air at the time and this film was in amongst you know the, the mix of harsh directors so it, it was just another thing but you don't know how much with regards to this film in particular is over the years just built up with its evil dirty nasty reputation um you know so I, much I, footage I, as well there's so much footage that was cut i mean this is one of the things about the film there is a remarkable amount of continuity errors and just little mistakes. They don't, not things that matter, but you know, one shot you'll see that Junior is wearing the peace necklace, right. and then the next shot she's wearing it. Um, just things like that, which makes you think, Christ, how much material must have hit the cutting room floor? Because I've seen lots and lots of dailies and outtakes that don't have sound from this film, just on random videos over the years and dvds and this this i think chopping a lot of the more gratuitous stuff out actually gives it more impact because when they when they finally get lucy grantham and they're stabbing her and you see a brief shot of phyllis pulling out one of her intestines right that scene went on like minutes like three or four minutes where they're just pulling stuff out and just playing with all of her insides and stuff and it's really 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 nasty 
it, it takes away from the power of you just seeing that brief split second of it. You think, Jesus, did I just see that? Because that's quite an unusual thing to have in a film of that type, because, you know, before that, you obviously had like Night of the Living Dead. And Night of the Living Dead had a bit of gut munching in it, but it was all far-fetched and it was more of a fantasy. Unless zombies are real. But with Last House, I mean, that, that sequence, it's like, why the hell did they disembowel her? What was the point in that? It was, it's so brief. It just, it, it's incredibly disturbing, that sequence. And the fact they just sort of dump her body and then the next minute they're carrying around her severed arm. Yes. Which is clearly moving. <laughs> <laughs> this, well, all right. So that bit really got me. Uh, it really made me, uh, I was taken aback watching it. I was just like, wow, okay. That was so harsh, so well put together. I was so impressed with it. And I was so shocked by it, which I guess is the director's intent. The mm. other bit of this film that really got me was when Hess, after all this, he takes a, a few seconds and you can see in his face that he's thinking about what he's done and he feels sick. Uh, yeah. And it's really, it's I don't know if they're trying to Im impress some humanity within these characters, like they're actually human after all. They know they've yeah. done wrong. But then they wash wash themselves clean and everything. So you know, washing off that sort of regret, maybe. I don't know what, what it's meant to show. But that little lingering look about their regret and about what oh, I just done. Harsh. Gut, it really gets you, doesn't it? I and didn't she's expect it in this film. She's in the background sort of praying. And, um, yeah, it is. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the way they build up Mary's character to that point makes it so much more harrowing because it's made very clear at the beginning that she is a virgin and that she isn't a girl of the city. She lives in the country. She has a peaceful life. Um, and she's kind of goes into this sordid nightmare that ends up with that and the way she walks into the river almost to cleanse herself. Yeah, man, yeah. yeah. Like it's, a very, it's a very emotional film. I mean, it's, it's extremely emotional and... The, the things you feel throughout the movie and the fact that Krug later on just tells his son to kill himself and he does like yes there you go see you later you see like an instant of he's gutted about what he's just done and it's only an instant this time it's not a few seconds lingering on him and then it's over so he's gone he's just gone at this point I don't know ecstatic about all this bedlam that he's created I've got to talk about a few things that I'm not sure about in the film. Uh, the reason why I didn't give it a 10, the reason why I gave it a 9. Um, Nine's pretty high, man. Nine's man awesome. It really is. Like, honestly, I just was blown away, top to bottom. But there's these things, right? And, okay. I, and I, I don't know how I feel about them. I don't think they're bad. I don't think they're good. I'm just like, I don't know yet. Um, remember, this is my... I've seen it two times. Okay, so we've got the bumbling cops. <laughs> So I, I think that may be a bit too bumbling. I don't I don't know yet, but maybe. <laughs> Especially the bit where they're sitting on the roof of the truck. Yeah. <laughs> and they just come straight flying yeah. up. Comedy where I didn't particularly want comedy. I didn't want levity at that that moment. Yeah. So there's that bit. And also I I love the bit where they're they're sort of fucking in the car 
as the, as the bad guys are just driving and are sort of fully clothed fucking whilst everything else is going on. I love that. But all this, I, I don't know how you feel about it. The musical, because you've mentioned you love the, the music here. I yeah. It's so harrowing at one moment what you're watching and then you've got over, over the top, you've got this uh, an acoustic ballad or you've got during that fucking scene there is yeah. this music going on that is yeah, just brilliant. describing that scene yeah. <laughs> We're good. I love it <laughs> yes it's like, I think it's brilliant okay I think I think that's what makes it I mean you you, you don't forget that do you do you know what I mean you're like I'll never forget yeah exactly and it's the same with um I think with Cannibal Holocaust Riz Ortolani's soundtrack I mean that sequence with the, the sea turtle We've all seen it and we've not enjoyed it, but that is harrowing because of the, the fact that this is this incredible soaring classical music soaring over the top of it. Weird. It's not the music you'd expect in a horror film. Yep. And so you remember it. And there's no, I mean, there's nothing in Last House that's particularly horror as far as the soundtrack goes. I think that's one of the strongest things about it. But so, is that something that you think I'll get used to over time? Because as I say, I just don't know right now. I don't know. I I can't wait to watch this thing again. But and the fact that he also has is his music. Yeah. It's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. I don't know how I feel about it yet. It's too fresh. I, it's too raw. I I can't imagine the film without it. And I think it is very strange. But then would the scenes of violence have the same impact if they weren't? you know, embedded within these ridiculous scenes of comedy. Because they, there's the sequence when they first get to um, the villain's flat, the apartment they're in, whatever, the bed set, yeah. where they're trying to get some weed. Um, in, I mean, David Hess is in the middle of a sentence when he gets his knife out and he says, if you make one more sound, and then like that, it cuts to the parents making a birthday cake listening to this sort of circus music. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't work. And it's a bit, it makes you think, oh man. But the more you watch it, the more you just realize that Wes Craven was just having a really good time and making something completely unique. Because it was his first feature film. I mean, he worked with Sean Cunningham on the film together, but that wasn't Wes's film. Wes's baby was Last House. Um, and, you know, I think, I don't. I mean, the same with Toe Hooper. I don't know if he was even necessarily trying to make a horror film. This is the thing: people see these films as horror movies, but I think Wes has said many times that it was just his reaction to the atrocities of Vietnam and you know things that were going on. Because it was around. Was it around the same time? It was just after the Rolling Stones gig at Altamont when the Hell's, right, like Hell's yeah. Angels killed some guy, and I think. Wes Graven was just like, okay, well, you know what? I'm just going to show everyone what they're missing on the screen and just show them, you know, what you don't see on the news. But let's just do whatever we want and anything goes. And it is a chaotic movie, isn't it? I mean, it is it is a mess. But I can't imagine it any other way. I think it's perfect. I think, yeah. It's there's only one scene. There's one sequence in the film, or maybe two, that I would definitely have changed. Okay. And I think they almost ruin the momentum there's the scene when um the mum finds out 
that the murderers are staying in her house. She opens the, the suitcase. She realizes that Mary's stuff is in there. And, right. and they go down to, they run down to the river in the middle of the night, which is a really beautiful sequence because it's obviously filmed at dusk, isn't it? And it's yeah. the lighting is incredible and the music on that scene. But when they get to the river, Mary is lying on the river and for a brief moment, she's moving. And then she's dead within a split second. And it's yeah. like, why did they, but like, if they'd found her body as if she'd crawled out of the river and tried to make it home, that would have been amazing. But the fact that she's briefly alive for a second and the mum says, is there nothing you can do? And the dad says, she's dead. It's like, well, why wasn't she dead three seconds ago when she was moving? Yeah. That's a really strange scene. And maybe if she'd have been alive for longer and they've tr they tried to resuscitate and they tried to look after her, that would have been fine. But that scene is so important because obviously they're finding their baby, their firstborn child, in this moment where they've discovered that their life is, will never be the same again. And it's a really brief, rushed, cobbled scene that doesn't work. And then when they take her home, they just dump her on the settee face down as if she's like a sack of potatoes. Right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That that yeah. I don't and also and the, the other thing that well that always kind of I find a bit of, a bit of shame is the fact that after all of this chasing with the chainsaw and all of this mayhem and carnage and the house getting demolished and everyone kicking everything over, you don't even see Krug getting killed. Right. No, I mean, it's like, oh, I love the fact that the cops come in at just at that moment and say, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. And you hear the chainsaw, but you don't see it. And then when it cuts to Krug's body, you can only see it from here down. So are you, are you meant to assume he was decapitated? I don't really, it just seems a bit loose, that sequence. Like, okay. Okay, this guy Krug has just fucked up your life here, mate. We want to see what you're doing to him. We don't want it to just suddenly pan to some cops having a laugh, asking for some more cake or whatever. But again, I guess that's part of the weirdness of the movie, isn't it? Well, it's also like one of the first times this sort of thing has been done in mm. such a, a gruesome and realistic way. So in a way, they're sort of inventing the wheel here. So certain things are going to work, certain things aren't. And you can see as cinema has moved on, as horrors moved on, they've kept so much of it, uh, but chucked away the little bits that uh, whatever director think, oh, that actually, like you just said, you know, maybe we <laughs> should be showing that next time. So that there is that to think about. But I, I get what you're saying there, especially with that end scene. Uh, I think well, you're right. I love the I love the um, the sequence with Jeremy Rain at the end because, as you were saying earlier, a lot of it was um, sort of made up as they went along off the cuff, you know. Yeah. And the scene when she's running and then she suddenly lands in the swimming pool, I, I'm pretty sure that wasn't in the script because that's a very genuine <laughs> act, sound of surprise. And I yeah. love because she's just like, oh shit, because it's it's dark out. She didn't see the swimming pool was there, and you can kind of tell that that bit was you know, perhaps not scripted, but I absolutely love the fact that when the chainsaw is finally coming down on Krug, um, Jeremy Rain tries to climb out the pool and the mum's just like, straight across her neck. And then she has the same demise as Mary had where she dies in the water. Good riddance to bad rubbish. That's what I say. I will say, David Hess, right? Don't watch House on the Edge of the Park because it's terrible. I've got to. 
don't watch the UK version's missing so much of it. I think you can watch it in full on YouTube. Yeah. I think someone's uploaded it. But that is Regara Diodato trying to remake Last House on the Left, and David Hess has exactly the same character. But it's just such a boring, boring film. Like it's I don't really understand why that film is deemed as some sort of classic because people love it. But when you compare it to, you know, the other films of Diodato and Last House on the Left, it's just a crappy Italian exploitation film. But do let me know when you watch it because I'd yeah, like to Yeah, of course I will. Of course. So, okay. Before we go, and uh, I want to say thank you for, the, for your time. People won't know this, but we've actually talked about the axe and Last House uh, in one go so yeah appreciate your time here but I, i'd be a fool not to ask you this final question so again is it about me meeting david hess <laughs> yeah oh yeah first of all how did you meet him uh, fright <laughs> fest 2000 i'll make this quick 2010 2011 fright fest there was this awful awful movie called smash cut which starred david hess and the porn star sasha gray and it looks like it might be a bit of a laugh from the poster. She's a nurse and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so we're, I'm watching this film with a friend at Fright Fest. And my friend is sort of saying, that guy behind us, is that David Hess? And I turn around, I was like, oh, fuck, David Hess is sitting behind us in the cinema. So we had a chat with him after the film. Really sweet bloke. But then, oh, man, he went up to the stage, did a little Q&A, and then pulled out the acoustic guitar and did a gig. And it was terrible. Everyone was just walking out. It was like, it was doing all these songs like, hey man, I'm still in the 70s here. It's like, oh my God, shut up, man. Um, and he started doing the soundtrack to Last House and just doing all the songs. And by this point, there was like maybe four people in the cinema still, because it was just, he's a good bloke and he was a really nice chap, but nobody wanted him to pull the guitar out because it went on and on and on. Um, a bit like me. There you go. And then he died. Well, it sounds like he did on the stage there. Yes. Mm. I hope, hopefully there's footage on YouTube of that somewhere, because you can probably hear people going, oh, God, no, 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 no. You know where I'm going. You know where I'm going mm. after this. Right, okay. I, I can't top that, but we, we, I've got to ask you, because they, they all end like this. Do you think this one is deserved of the tag Video Nasty? We're allowed bad language on this podcast, aren't we? Yes, indeed we are. Encourage it. Fuck yeah. Of course it is. Imagine seeing this film in 1972. And imagine seeing it in 1984. Imagine seeing it in 2009. You know, it's like, it, it's not, the power of this movie has not changed. And, you know, I, I, have, I have two kids. You've got, you've got children, haven't you? Yeah. Or one? Yeah. And yeah, this is, definitely not a film that i'd want an unwilling teenager or any age to pick up off the video shelf so yeah i think there are a few films on the video nasties list which a hundred percent are for adults and so the certification on these films is is vital i don't think it should have been banned no i don't think that it should have been you know confiscated and messed up and released in so many different cuts but i think these films should have been rated higher to begin with. That would have been a better thing to do than 
basically have full-grown adults like you and me still struggling to watch them to this day. <laughs> Do you know what I think? That's weird. So right. I agree. That's yeah. it, you know, double X, triple X, whatever. Like you have to be 21 to watch it. Fine. You know. And again, it was originally called the sex crime of the century, wasn't it? I think that was the original title. Yeah. Or Krug and Company. But Last House on the Left is the ultimate horror name, isn't it? Like the end, the house and the left-hand path. So it's like genius title. Today, if you're going to watch this today, if you're going to recommend this to someone today, um, do you have to already be a total horror nut for this? Or would you go to just a regular cinephile like you need to watch this? Uh, I think you would but you have got many more years invested than I. Do you think it holds up today? Do you think that it should be seen by contemporary viewers? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a vital film. I mean, I can't think of anything else from that era that has the same impact and is so unique. Um, unique is obviously a word that definitely describes this film because nothing else like it. As you were saying earlier, like people would say, I spit on your grave and last house on the left. Very different films. But, you know, similar in tone, but there isn't a single note of music in I Spit on Your Grave for the entire film. And it's over 100 minutes long. God. Yeah. Got that to come. Oh, my yeah. word. I will I, but yeah, I, I would definitely recommend it. I mean, I've shown, I've shown, when I really love a film, I make a point of trying to show it to as many people as possible. My wife's seen Last House on the Left and she wasn't particularly enamoured by it. She, she wasn't disturbed as such, but when she sees me sort of going on about it and playing the soundtrack over dinner and stuff, and she's just like, <laughs> but, you know, she's a big horror fan as well. Like she, she really loves her horror films. We've been through so many, so many movies together. And I'm always genuinely surprised what she really loves and what she doesn't really have any thoughts about. And Last House was one of the ones where she just didn't really, it was just, yeah, I've seen it. It was all right. And yet she watched the uncut version of the Serbian film and thought it was a masterpiece. Interesting. Although now I can't get over the thought of <laughs> image in my head of you eating dinner listening to David Hess. <laughs> I'll do it tonight, man. I, you know, it's, it's jolly music, isn't it? All right, listen, I'm going to say one thing. Last House, if anyone out there who's listening to this has seen it, which hopefully many, many people have, I would highly recommend the Italian film Night Train Murders because it's a, basically a remake of Last House and it's absolutely brilliant. Really, really, really disturbing. Very well made, really creepy. Um, shameless, I've released that one, Uncut. And I think you, Paul, especially, you'd like it. If you like trains and murder, there you go, that's the film for you two of my so, most favorite things <laughs> thomas the tank engine meets last house on the left so there we go on that bombshell graham thank, <laughs> thank you so much for being a part Sorry, of this man. Show. pleasure as pleasure as ever
Having listened to this soundtrack several times, I can honestly say that I just don't get it at all. This music is written and composed by the musician David Hess, who, of course, as you just heard, is also playing the unhinged menace of this movie, the character of Krug. I know this movie wouldn't be what it is without it, and it is essential to the story and to the legend of Last House on the Left. I get that. And for me, it still works pretty well separated from the movie, which always helps when I'm listening back to these things. And I think that is probably because this is largely song-based. Tracks like Wait for the Rain and Now You're All Alone and Ice Cream Song, they just give me the absolute creeps with their Americana 70s radio friendliness and what I know this music covers on the film. The more electronica parts like Goodbye Dick, they're even more bizarre. They wouldn't feel out of place in Woody Allen's movie Sleeper or René Lulau's Fantastic Planet. The weirdest moment though is for the end credits, which would work just as well for a film like Porky's. It's got this bouncy rhythm, it's got the dialogue that runs you through some of the movie's key themes, and I was just scratching my head listening to this. It's bloody mad. I'm going to leave you with some of that. So where can you find Last House on the left? Well, if you want to stream it in the UK, it is available in one place, and that is called Plex. This is for free, of course, streaming for free, should have mentioned that. Uh, in the big old US of A, it is also on Plex, but it's on Popcorn Flicks, Pluto TV, and Tubi. Now, Arrow Video do a very, very fantastic Blu-ray of this one as well, and that is what I opted for, and I recommend you do the same. It can't be beaten. It's comprehensive and a sort of outstanding watch. You know when you get those Arrow Blu-rays now and again, and it simply just takes your breath away, the amount of amazing stuff that's on there? Well, this is one of those. As for podcasts, I'm just going to recommend you one. I would check out episode 312 of Invasion of the Remake podcast. They did a rather neat job for 90 minutes or so comparing the original Last House on the left with the 2009 remake. And yeah, that is your lot. Thanks so much again to Graham Bywater for running through this video nasty with me. Rightio, let's choose the year that we are going to be dealing with next month. I'm going to open my little, uh, I say bag, but it's a, uh, what is this? This is a, uh, a laptop case. <laughs> That's what it is with a load of bits of paper in. Hang on, I'm going to rummage through. Pulled one out. 
1998. Hmm. Scream was 96. Was J-Horror a thing by 98? Uh, I think so. There's definitely going to be some of that there. Um, there was also a shot-for-shot shot remake of Psycho that I know I don't like that much. I don't know what happened in 98 apart from that. Um, I formed my very first band in 1998. <laughs> oh dear, that's not very good, is it? Uh, I'll try and find a few seconds of that trash, so I'll play a bit of my band at that point for you. But yeah, with horror, I just don't know really. Hopefully, uh, as I say, some J-horror in there. Cool. 98 it is. So there we go. That's that. Um, let's move on with the, uh, the 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 end titles, shall we? If you want to listen to any of the A Year in Horror jingles, then head over to the A Year in Horror dot bandcamp dot com uh, page. It's all there. It's all there. It's free unless you want to pay. Either way, I'm cool. Feel free also to contact the podcast at a year in horror at gmail.com with any films that you think I may have missed or simply just to have a go at me. You can follow me at Walla Weller on Letterboxd and Instagram or you can hit me up at NotWellerPod on Twitter. Also on Letterboxd I have got a listed all of the years that we've tackled so far and attached the films to their proper positions. Don't forget about Patreon. Please don't forget about that. www.patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. The first tier is a £3 tier and the next one is a £4 tier. And if you do the £4 tier, then you're going to get all that extra bonus content. But any contribution that you make to a year in horror is going to be put straight back into making this regular, original and specialist content. And of course, I mention it each month, but you're going to get this warm, fuzzy glow about you. I tell you, I've seen people walking in the street with this ready breck glow. It's weird, and it's all because of this. So thanks, uh, patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. don't think I'm feeling very well. Um, great big thanks also have to go to my wife, Claire Waller. Uh, she is doing all those Photoshop posters for each episode. Also, she did the sci-fi corner jingle, the spooky jingle. One Trick Pony, they designed the uh, fantastic A Year in Horror logo. And the music, A Year in Horror, that theme music, that was from Max Newton and Lucy Foster. I want to also thank the guests Andy Lono, John Tantalon, Kay Lynch, Mark Canali and Dan Martin. But most of all, massive thanks go out to you lot for listening to this right to the end. I'm going to see you next month for a podcast that will feature all the best horror films from 1998. Whatever that year's got to offer, I don't know. But at least it's going to be another fat slab of fright. And it's headed straight for your bonts. Peace!